Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The Internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Ladies and gentlemen, today's feature presentation, Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, oh man. No, just, just what I'm talking about. It's time for the damn I'm tired. Hey, yo, check it out, man. I got Black C's at the crib, man. Y'all want to go check that out? Yeah. That's the idea. Cool. We could have rolled it from the beginning. Y'all with it, Fuck man. Hollywood. Before there was Oprah, before there was Arsenio Hall, before there was Tom Joyner or Joy Reid, there was Ellis Hazlip. In the 1960s, Hazlip was the executive producer and host of the groundbreaking current events show, Soul. He's the subject of a new documentary, Mr. Soul, being screened at the Tribeca Film Festival. When it debuted in 1968, Soul was originally a local New York show. A year later, the series went national on PBS, produced by WNAT Channel 13. Soul was more than a talk show. It was a political platform, a show that featured African-American poets, artists, politicians, activists, and at a time when black Americans were asserting their civil rights unapologetically. Here's a clip of Hazlip from the documentary describing the show. Because I hadn't seen enough images of myself, I watched. Lo and behold, I saw Wilson Pickett, the last poets, Billy Preston, Stevie Wonder, Nikki Giovanni, Al Green, Bill Withers, and Imam Ubaraka. And I'm not trying to say that I won't ever see black people on TV should some unaware group of people take soul off. It's just that I won't see black people creating, searching, and acting instead of reacting, researching, and reacting. There exists, as far as I know, no TV program that deals with my culture so completely, so freely, and so beautifully. There is no alternative to soul. The documentary Mr. Soul was produced by Melissa Hazlip and Sam Pollard, and Melissa joins us in studio today. Hi, Melissa. Hey, it's so great to be here. Thank you, Allison. So the last name is the same. What's the relationship? Well, I have to confess, he is my uncle, so there's <laughs> definitely a really 
strong heart connection to this project. Now, when you first heard about Ellis Hazlip, not as your uncle, but as this this groundbreaking person, when did you think this will be a good documentary? You know, I just thought that this was such an incredible story that needed to be told. I felt that it was an era of time of great tumult and change, and yet nobody was really talking about the beginning of things, the beginning of freedom of expression, the beginning of redefining black culture, the beginning of a, of a, of a reassertion and, a, and somewhat of a, a rebirth of black culture as defined by black people themselves. And I thought, nobody's really taken that uh, point of view and told that story. And I thought, it's time. It's definitely time. And it's the 50th anniversary of the show this year. So 1968 to yeah. 2018, I thought it's a perfect time. What was the mission of the show? What was Ellis's vision? I think Ellis wanted to to really re- be able to reflect true black culture for the first time and bring it into people's living rooms. You know, there was such a divide at the time, 1968, especially after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Every every person who was of color was, was being defined by the outside and not by the inside. They didn't have an opportunity to show who they really were and to show that they were more than, you know, what do you see on television? You see riots, you see... Uh, garbage not being picked up in Harlem, you know, that's not really what's happening. There's a renaissance out there. There's a way to express yourself that you haven't had an opportunity to do. And I think that was his vision. One of the things you do in the beginning of the film, which is very helpful, is you provide context of what TV looked like at that time and what the the Kerner Commission found. Explain a little bit about why you decided to set up the documentary that way. We don't learn about Ellis immediately. We learn about TV. I think it's very important because it was, a. I think, the birth of public television and the Public Broadcasting Act is really inextricable when you're talking about the story of Seoul reaching a wider audience and creating a black audience, which had heretofore had not really happened. And so we thought it's really better if we can set up the zeitgeist of what was happening. What did Seoul interrupt? What were we used to seeing on television? What, what were the models we knew? We knew uh, The Tonight Show. We knew... Ed Sullivan, but there really was no model for a show that was not only a vehicle for African-American artistry, but a platform for political expression and the fight for social justice. That's a trifecta that we hadn't Mm -hmm. seen yet. So I thought it would be really important to understand why that was unique for the time and why it really was revolutionary for television, especially public television. You had a professor in the film, uh, Sarah Lewis from Harvard, who said the media had been weaponized to argue for the inhumanity of African-Americans at the time. Absolutely, and and we love Sarah Lewis. She's so wonderful, and she had that book. Uh, she, uh, I guess, edited the Aperture, um, uh, beautiful edition of Aperture mm-hmm. ph- Photography Magazine. And Sarah really speaks directly to the time that media had been weaponized because what was sh- being shown on television was very specific to convey a sense of less than, of barbarity, mm-hmm. of um, inequality. And that was the theme that was being pushed. And Ellis Hazelp said, no, that's not who we are. There's so much more depth. There's so much more complexity. And all you need to do is see us. It's We're not here to entertain you necessarily. Mm-hmm. But if you're entertained and you learn something in the process, that's really wonderful. When they came to him initially, they just kind of described it as a Black Tonight show, and he said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. And he, he was uh, very um, adamant about the content being undiluted. Yes. What does that mean? Unfiltered, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of an uncompromising celebration of black excellence, which really hadn't had an opportunity 
to be seen. Uh, the the complexities of politics, of poetry, literature, and music, the black arts movement was all about that, redefining really what it meant to be black in America, what it meant to be black on this planet. Can you just go through a list of some of the guests he had? It's amazing when you when you start to think about it. Oh, my goodness. It was a bevy of African-American icons of the 20th century. We know now, of course, but many of them were uh, receiving their first opportunity to be on television, such as, believe it or not, Earth, Wind & Fire for the first time, Al Green for the first time, Roberta Flack, Cicely Tyson, The Last Poets. Oh, my goodness. There were just so many people that you would just die to see for the first time on television. And then also iconic folks, Muhammad Ali, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, who's also in the film. Yes. Sort of as a a witness to Ellis and the show. He is an anchor for us because Mm -hmm. he was there and he really speaks to the, the diversity of voices and the rich voices of the time speaking for black culture. Who do you think would have been a guest on the show today? I, you know, I think about that all the time, and we had the great opportunity to interview Questlove uh, at The Tonight Show. Um, he had just finished taping a show, and he allowed us to squeeze into the green room. And uh, I thought, this is a person who is the legacy of soul. Mm-hmm. You know, here he is. Not only is he an exquisite sort of ethnomusicologist, he's a band leader. He understands the landscape of late-night television and the the struggle of being an artist and also a representative of the culture. And what shocked me was to learn that he had uh, an encyclopedic memory of the show and how the show had impacted his band and how he modeled sets that they did based on what he saw for the roots, rather, the sets Mm -hmm. they were doing for the roots, for what he saw on Soul. And one particular example, we had to go in and recut the film because he talked about this moment when Earth, Wind & Fire played about 32 counts of eight but they weren't playing anything. They were miming it. And the audience went nuts. And he said, we did that on our show. We based our show on that. (laughs) I think he would be the perfect host, if not the perfect guest, because he's a combination of all of these various art firms, and he doesn't limit himself. And Ellis didn't limit himself either. I was thinking Kendrick Lamar would be... And, you know, we really haven't seen a sit-down with Colin Kaepernick. That's true. That would have been a, that would have been a, a sole guest. <laughs> Absolutely. The rebels were welcome. And I think in every fiber of his being, Ellis believed in, in liberation as a redefi- redefining culture based on liberation and freedom. We're talking with Melissa Hazlip about her new documentary, Mr. Soul, about Ellis Hazlip, who is a groundbreaking African-American talk show host. Let's talk about his background a little bit. He was in TV, but he was sort of a bon vivant around New York City. What had he been doing before he was the television host? Before he was a television host, he was seeped in the world of theater. He had worked with Vinette Carroll at the Urban Arts Corps and the National uh, the Negro Ensemble Company, I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. He had done a lot of theater. He had worked with Les, uh, Cicely Tyson, had produced shows up at the Harlem YMCA, had gone across Europe. He had met and worked with uh, James Baldwin to produce the very first international tour of the Amen Corner hmm. uh, in 1965. So he was really well-versed in theater, but he had his finger on the pulse of what was important and wanted to show all aspects of the arts and give a platform to women especially. That was really very important. Yeah, his staff was also a lot of women, right? A lot of women. Started out with uh, Anna Maria Horsford was a temp at WNET, and he said, no, I think you'd make a great actress, and brought her on to be the associate producer of the show. And he was always putting women in front. He would have iconic poets interviewing 
iconic lit- literary uh, icons. Well, that's redundant, but <laughs> 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 iconic icons. Uh, so he flew Nikki Giovanni, for example, to London to meet up with James Baldwin, who was living in exile, of course, mm-hmm. in St. Paul de Vence, and who didn't want to come back to America. He said, I'll meet you halfway. And they did this epic two-hour uh, interview in London in 1971. It was just remarkable, and they turned it into a book. He's not from D.C. I mean, he's not from New York. He is from Washington, D.C., and yes. he grew up in segregated Washington, D.C., and you touched on his, his desire to bring black excellence, and this is where our paths cross okay. because the, my mother went to high school with that's right. With, he used to call them old, she called him old Crazy Alice. <laughs> because at the time, you know, he was considered in high school a, a race man. He wanted to, to they, that's what they used to call it back in the 40s, right? right? But it's a positive term, actually. Yes. It comes from the idea of doing something great for the race. And since the race was segregated, to be able to push forward the agenda for the race and to better the race. And so not to be confused with being racist, but to be doing something for the race. So race movies or black westerns, they were all to give opportunities where there hadn't been before. And so at Howard University and also at Dunbar High School, this these were his formative years. And one would think that that having uh, uh, a segregated society to be lived in would be limiting, but it was actually the opposite. So he found solace and comfort and found his greatest uh, exposure to theatricality was in the church. Mm-hmm. And so later on, he included a lot of gospel and music, and he produced the record Truth is on Its Way with Nikki Giovanni, uh, which in our film, Nikki talks about performing with the, the New York Community Choir and how important that was to her. And trying to incorporate all of these elements was really very special. He was also openly gay, yes. even though his, his father was deeply religious. At, you know, he was in that era of Bayard Reston. That was, that was brave at the moment. Very, very brave. And we often wonder, how did he navigate those worlds to be uh, openly gay and to live in that truth and to give everyone opportunities, especially... Uh, people of color who would have been marginalized at the time, even by their families or their own communities, and by just the nature of, you know, you, you're you're on the, the tail end of civil rights, the, the heels of civil rights movement. There's enough to hold you down. Mm. But to have to limit yourself, he never saw that as a limitation, and he never, uh, he, he just was really, it was really important to give people opportunities. And I, th- I think that's one of the most beautiful things about him is that he was always true to himself. And the fact that he was gay and promoting uh, LGBT uh, rights and chal- openly challenging mm-hmm. people. Like, for example, there's this amazing episode where he openly challenges uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, who was uh, quite a character in that time. Uh, and he's you know brings up the issue of many people uh, found their righteousness while incarcerated in prison. And it's no- it's known that people who had um, same-sex relationships and, and same-gender loving, would they be accepted by the Nation of Islam? And he takes Farrakhan to task, mm-hmm. which was remarkable. Because on the one hand, he was promoting the opportunity for Farrakhan to speak, but on the other hand, he was challenging him, saying, you know, I see you, yeah, and you see me, but we're both going to openly have a dialogue here because that's what it's all about. We're going to give everybody a platform. He did not shy away from controversy. He had Eldred Cleaver's wife on. He had Muhammad Ali at the height of his um, being against the Vietnam War. Uh, do you think a show like this could exist now? I mean, it was radical. He had the last poets dropping the N-word, doing their, their word poetry. It's, it was kind of, my jaw dropped a couple of times. I thought, wow, this was on TV. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty radical. And it was, I think what made it unusual was that it was live. 
And so you had this, you know, the FCC couldn't stop you. Mm -hmm. There was no seven-second delay. And so it really gave people an opportunity to express themselves without commercial intervention. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that type of show could exist today, but I think a version of it could and that we really need this right now. I think that uh, there needs to be a place where black excellence of every kind is allowed and welcome to flourish. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a uh, part that could have been part of the demise of the show and that the, why there is such opposition toward it. But I, I think a cause is only as strong as the opposition that surrounds it. And so uh, I, I would hope, I mean, hoping that our love letter to WNET and to the show will reinvigorate a dialogue around the show and perhaps creating a new model for it. Will you just shut up and let me talk? Liv, you did this thing. And I know you did it for me or because Melly made you think you were doing it for me. I didn't do this for you! I did not do this for you! I did this for me. So I could work on the campaign. So I could walk down the street and not be whispered about. So I could stop being known as the woman who screwed the president so the scarlet A on my chest could be invisible. So I'm not a joke. I am a person. I am not a hen. I am not a prize. And I have a business to run. People to support. A life to lead. A desire to wake up and face myself in the mirror every day. Oh, and oh, once I fixed a presidential election, and I'd like a chance to right that wrong. Your wife may be many things, but on one thing we are united. I cannot honestly win a presidential election if I am your public whore. Olivia Pope is about to handle her final crisis. She's the fictional political fixer on ABC's drama Scandal, which airs its final episode tonight. Here's NPR TV critic Eric Deggins. From its very first scene, Scandal's formula was set. Aggressively smart people doing consequential things while talking very fast. Like this moment from the show's 2012 pilot, when aspiring lawyer Quinn Perkins finds out that the blind date she thought she was on with another young lawyer is actually something else. Dirty Martini, what do you mean this is a job interview? This is a job interview? You're a baby lawyer. You're 12 years old. I'm 28 years old. Why aren't we sitting in an office in a law firm? Because that's not how we do job interviews. I didn't apply for a job with you. I didn't. You did. Okay, you know what? This has been whatever, but I don't do blind dates. Ask me who I work for. What? You really want to ask me who I work for. Fine, who do you work for? Olivia Pope. Olivia Pope played by Kerry Washington, was the first black woman to lead a broadcast TV drama series in nearly 40 years. Scandal creator Shonda Rhimes based her story on another trailblazer, real-life crisis manager Judy Smith, a black woman who served in George H.W. Bush's White House. But the fictional version runs pretty much all of Washington, D.C., as Olivia explained this season to President Melly Grant. We have it all, but the men outside these oval walls They want to take it all away from us because they are terrified, because they are outraged, because they have come to the realization that all those centuries of misogyny and privilege and status quo are finally over. That is why you never listen to a man over me. That moment where two women are poised to serve as leaders of America felt like a bit of wish fulfillment for a show that often featured women, gay people, and people of color in positions of power. 
It's tough to remember what TV was like six years ago before Scandal because so many more shows these days star women of color. But from Viola Davis on ABC's How to Get Away with Murder to Taraji P. Henson on Fox's Empire, black women now lead some of television's highest profile series. In part, that's because Rhymes cracked open the door for more inclusion through Scandal. ABC even reserved Thursdays for three shows executive produced by Rhymes, Grey's Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, and Scandal. Rhymes referenced that legacy in a crossover episode featuring Davis as super lawyer Annalise Keating, who reached out to Olivia Pope for help, but they wound up fighting while sitting in a hair salon. I never judged you. Oh, you judge me immediately. Just like a white man in a boardroom looking down on me because my hips are too wide and my hue too dark. Oh, so we're going there. Wow. I think we sold sisters just because you rented out a hair salon for a few hours on the black side of town, please. You know your skin tone and measurements aren't the reason people don't like you. Annalise Keating, you are a bully who insults people and then wonders why they won't help you. But hey, you're just trying to keep it real. They eventually worked it all out. But there's only so many world-shaking crises a fast-talking fixer can solve before things feel a little stale. And Donald Trump's Washington is so unpredictable these days, Scandal's plots can look like pale imitations. Rhymes herself admitted as much to Good Morning America anchor Lara Spencer in 2016. Because we had all kinds of crazy things planned, and I keep walking in the room and going, well, we can't do that. Because it's real. Because it's real. <laughs> and it, people will think we're, we're stealing from the actual life. And now life has surpassed anything that we could come up with. ABC hasn't given critics tonight's finale in advance, so I can only hope it ends with Olivia saving Melly's presidency and yet somehow still running the world. But Scandal's legacy is already set, reflected in the wider palette of characters featured in TV shows across the industry. I'm Eric Deggins. If you're going to dominate people over a long period of time and do it in a scientific manner, one of the easiest ways to do it, if not the easiest way, is to keep the people confused. So you keep confusion going. Dislocation is one of the major ones now. Keep people moving because they have found out over a period of time that people who are constantly forced to move from one place to another, either the water is rising and they have to move, or in some cases the water is not rising, but the prices are rising in the area where they are. And they can no longer stay there because they can't afford to be where they are. So they raise the prices on everything. They foreclose on the house that a person is in. That person has got to move. Because they have found that when people are constantly moving, they are dislocated. And they are angry and they are frustrated. And they can't get their bearings. They can be almost driven insane. 83 million. That's the number of court records researchers at Princeton University's eviction lab have been combing through to understand how evictions work in America. The lab released its findings this month, and here's what it found. In 2016 alone, landlords were given the legal right to remove nearly a million renters from their homes, and that's a low estimate. Emily Badger is a reporter for The Upshot at the New York Times, and she's on the phone to walk us through the data. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me. And in studio with us, we have organizers Randy Dillard and Susanna Blankley from the Coalition Right to Counsel NYC. They organized tenants at risk of eviction. And last year, they got the city to pass a law that ensures all low-income New Yorkers facing eviction have access to an attorney. We're going to dive into that a little bit. Randy and Susanna, welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Emily, we're going to start with you because you're on the phone from California, and then we'll bring Randy Susanna into the conversation. Uh, Emily, tell us about this database of evictions at the Eviction Lab in Princeton. A, how did the project start, and what's its mission? So Matthew Desmond is a sociologist at Princeton who has been putting this together. And, you know, a lot of people may be familiar with him from this book that he published two years ago, Evicted, uh, which, you know, really introduced this problem to a lot of people. Uh, it won a Pulitzer Prize. It was named, you know, one of their favorite books of the year by both Barack Obama and Bill Gates last year. Uh, and, and so it caused a lot of people to think for the first time about this problem of eviction and sort of how it reinforces cycles of poverty. But, you know, that, that book was based on uh, Desmond's research in Milwaukee, sort of one city following about eight families as they were going through their housing troubles. And, and even Desmond could not tell us, you know, how widespread is this problem? Which cities have the highest eviction rates in America? You know, what are there some patterns among the places that have really high eviction rates? And that's because, you know, there, there really is no sort of national data that answers any of those questions for us. Um, you know, the sense this bureau doesn't have, you know, some vast evictions database. You know, they don't have data on it in the same way that they have data on a lot of other questions about the housing market. Um, you know, the government is not tracking this. So he set out with, with the team that he works with at Princeton to basically, you know, build this database himself by trying to collect millions and millions of individual court records. So this 83 million number that you referred to, these are eviction court records going back to 2000. So they span about 17 years' worth of data. Uh, they come from all over the country. They're, so far, you know, this is an incomplete picture because it turns out in many states it's much harder to extract these records than in others. Uh, New York State is one of those places where the picture is more incomplete. Uh, but now we're able to say for the first time, you know, where, where are their hot spots of this problem? You know, what is it that might be happening there? And when we talk about a place that has an eviction problem, like how many renters are we talking about? And the, the numbers are really alarming. I mean, we're talking about some communities where as many as one in 10 renter households in a single year are receiving an eviction judgment in court. Where are some of these high eviction rates in regions? So this was a little bit surprising from the national picture. I think, you know, a, a lot of people might assume that we're seeing the most eviction in the most expensive cities because there's quite a lot of concern, you know, in California where I'm sitting, in, in New York, obviously, and in a lot of other sort of high-cost coastal cities, that the rapidly rising cost of rent is driving people out of their homes. And, uh, you know, so I think that you would assume that we would be seeing a lot of eviction in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and Washington. Uh, but, in fact, what we see on this map is that there's a a lot of eviction happening in the southeast, uh, you know, happening in uh, places where there's a lot of poverty, uh, in places where there's a very large uh, African-American population. And, and part of what this data suggests to me, and again, this is still an incomplete picture, is that, you know, a lot of eviction is happening in places where there just are not a lot of tenant protections. You know, the, the, there's not a lot of regulation of the landlord-tenant relationship in general, and to the extent that there is regulation of that, it tends to be much more in favor of landlords. So, you know, in, in a place like New York or Washington, D.C., for instance, yeah, it's very expensive, but there are also far more tenant protections and also a much stronger legal aid community in those places than is the case in, for instance, Richmond, Virginia, where I did a lot of reporting on this. Okay, we're going to dive into Richmond in a little bit, but I do want to bring Susanna and Randy into this conversation. Just what you've heard Emily say, what really rings true to you about what she said so far, Susanna? 
Yeah, that evictions are a cross-section of racial justice, economic justice, but also really about power in terms of who controls where we live and who has a say over our homes. So in New York, landlords try to sue anywhere from 250 to 300,000 households a year. That's any, that's about a million people. And when we looked at this crisis in New York through organizing in the Bronx around reforming the Bronx Housing Court that CASA did, and in Brooklyn with the Brooklyn Tenants United that was looking at the case of the Brooklyn Housing Court, we really saw the courts as a place where landlords had more power and control and a place where landlords were evicting people when they wouldn't if tenants had attorneys. Just to remind you, we're speaking with um, the Susanna Blankley from the Right to Counsel NYC Coalition. Also joining us is Randy Dillard, also with the Right to Counsel NYC Coalition. So, Randy, uh, how common is, is this in New York City uh, from your experience? From my experience, I just found out about it about four and a half years ago when I went to court and working with counsel Susanna as the director and they did a report tipping the scales. Mm -hmm. And then we found out that 90% of the landlords and housing courts had lawyers and tenants didn't. We found out that three out of every four tenants that went to court didn't even talk to a clerk inside the court. We found out that 41% of some of the tenants that went to court didn't even talk to a judge. And we also found out that uh, tenants didn't know anything about the courtroom, just like I didn't know anything about the courtroom. Yeah, I want to ask you, would you mind sharing your, your personal story with us? Yes. Uh, my landlord took me to court mm -hmm. for a non-payment of rent that I did not owe. I had a Section 8 voucher. Uh, Section 8 came into my apartment. They did the repairs to my apartment, came in and did the inspection. And we, they found out that the landlord hadn't did repairs to my place. So they stopped paying them their portion of my rent, but I had to keep paying my portion of my rent. And I got sick, and I went to the hospital. I almost died, like I tell everybody. When I came out, my landlord served me with papers. I'm a single parent with five children, and my five kids was in the hallway when my landlord's lawyer served me papers. And they was looking at me, and I was looking at them, and they wanted an answer to after the landlord's lawyer left with daddy, what we're going to do. Wow. In my mind was being homeless and going to the shelters. Of course. And I was fortunate that in my neighborhood that there was a POTS part of the solution where I went and got a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate that CASA was there, where Susanna was the director at the time, that I went in there to learn what my rights was. I was in court for two and a half years. Uh, Section 8 had stopped my portion of Section 8 because of one of the violations that they had stopped paying the landlord for. Mm -hmm. uh, the mental effect that it has on it, my daughter was a B student. She dropped from B's to D's and F's, thinking that she was going to go to a shelter. My landlord was so bold that he arrested my son. You understand, we found out that we had cameras in the neighborhood to show that the police was lying. So you go through a You've lot. You've been through it. Yes, yes. You've you go, been through you it. You go through a lot dealing with a slumlord. Yeah. Emily, I want to bring you back in. So, something that was very interesting about what Randy said is it's not just the eviction that's the problem. That just sets off a series of events in people's lives. Can you walk through that a little bit for us? 
Yeah, I mean, the, this is why this problem is, is such a big deal, because it's not just sort of one problem in and of itself, that someone's not paying their rent, they can't pay their rent, and so, you know, they get taken to court. Like, it's uh, there's this long story that happens for every single one of these households after they come out of court with an eviction judgment on their record and, and having to leave their home. And, you know, so you see, um, you know, there are consequences for, for children, exactly as Randy was describing with his own daughter, uh, you know, when children don't have stable homes, they are much less likely to be able to concentrate and perform well in school. Um, you know, there are consequences for adults. If you get evicted from the home and, you know, the bus stop by that home was how you got to your job and, you know, now you no longer have access to that transit line, maybe that's going to cost you your job. Um, you know, I've heard lots of cases of, you know, people who received public benefits of some kind, whether it was Medicaid or uh, food stamps. You know, every year you may get some piece of paper in the mail that tells you, you know, now it's time for you to renew your eligibility for this. Well, if you lose your address, you lose your ability to get a piece of mail like that, and as a result, you may lose your SNAP benefits, you may lose your Medicaid. You know, there are just these cascading consequences, and one of the things that I realized uh, in, in discovering that a bunch of communities have a tremendous amount of this housing instability is that these ripple effects, you know, they, they add up not just for individual people, but they add up for entire cities. So, you know, now what happens when you have an entire school district where a large share of children have housing instability and are unable to learn. You know, what happens when you're running a social services department and you can't keep track of the people that you're trying to help? I mean, these, these really big picture macro consequences really add up and they all stem back at the end of the day to, you know, this, this one court decision that happened on one, at one moment in time. Um, but Emily, I want to bring you in because we mentioned at the top of the show that Richmond, Virginia has the highest concentration of evictions. And you visited court in Richmond, and you've heard what the experience has been for Randy here in New York. Um, Tell us a little bit what the experience was like in Richmond and why you decided to drill down there. What I saw in Richmond was, um, you know, a, a very clear example of what Susanna referred to earlier as this, like, incredible imbalance of power in the courtroom. So very, very few people have lawyers. Tenants tenants don't have lawyers. Uh, invariably, property managers or uh, landlords show up with lawyers. So, you know, you have, you have some people there who are very familiar with the system. You know, all of the lawyers know each other. They know the judges. You know, even the, the lawyers who are there, you know, doing legal aid and the lawyers who are there representing property managers. Like, they know each other. You know, everyone knows the rules except for the people who are walking in there potentially going to be evicted. And I think it's really unrealistic to think that that, that people could navigate this complicated legal system without someone holding their hand through it. I mean, sort of, you know, regardless of what your your knowledge of the legal system is, it's incredibly intimidating. And because these courts are looking at dozens of eviction cases, you know, on a docket at any given day, these cases happen, you know, really quickly. Like, your, your case may come before a judge and be done in two minutes. And that's certainly not enough time to sort of process what's going on, to ask questions, to even understand if you're allowed to ask questions. And, you know, my, my experience in Richmond, one of the first things I did when I got to town there was, was I went down to the courthouse and, uh, and and had this terrible experience just trying to get in the door of the courthouse there because it turns out you can't bring your cell phone into the courthouse. You know, you can't bring a bottle of water into the courthouse. You can't bring a phone charger into the courthouse. And so, you know, people show up not knowing this, and then it turns out that they can't even get through the metal detector at the door. And, 
you know, people are having to tuck their cell phones in the bushes and under trash cans outside. And I met one woman who, you know, in the process of doing that, wound up missing her court date, which happened, you know, very, very quickly inside because she was just trying to get in the door. And to me, that was this very sort of perfect distillation of how, you know, the, here is this process that, that is very cumbersome, that, that's daunting. People don't know how to navigate it. And we're certainly not making it easy for people to do that. You know, when you get a summons to go to court in most places for an eviction case, you know, you don't get like a handy little FAQ that's delivered with it that tells you, you know, make sure you don't bring your cell phone to court. You know, make sure you, you know, know what you should bring with you. And these are the expectations that you should have. And this is exactly how the process is going to play out. You know, no, no one is thinking about like, what, you know, what kind of customer service should we be providing to people who are entering this really daunting process? You know, I, I, I know Richmond pretty well. I have family in Richmond, and there's an interactive map on the New York Times website. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you see it, the evictions are all in the historically black communities. Mm-hmm. It's just the west end of Richmond. There, there aren't any. And the laws in Virginia, and I think you, you pointed this out in your piece, Emily, is that they're meant, to, uh, they're meant for white male landowners, right, historically. Mm-hmm. So there is part of history in this. And five out of the ten... No, I say five out of the ten um, of the most uh, cities with most evictions are in Virginia, and eight out of the ten are in the South. Mm-hmm. So there is a component of race in this, isn't there? I think there's, you know, there race is embedded throughout this problem. You know, right. it's embedded in the fact that, you know, tenants who, um, you know, who are living in poverty, who are less likely to be able to pay their bills, you know, they are more likely to be African American or to be, uh, you know, people of color who have not had economic opportunity. You know, it's embedded in the fact that uh, African Americans in Richmond and a lot of other places are living in sort of the worst quality housing stock because they have been relegated to that by sort of generations of segregation and you know, these other kind of long-term forces in the housing market. But then I also think it's true that when when we're talking about laws at the level of state legislatures and whether or not we're willing to grant more protections to this class of people, you know, I think that race plays a role in that as well. You know, this is true anytime we're talking about sort of creating greater protections for the poor. You know, people's ideas about who is poor and how race fits into that and whether or not, you know, people are deserving uh, of aid when they're poor, you know, those are sort of inseparable from ideas about race in America as well. I see you're, you're nodding, Susanna, to what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a very strong narrative of deserving versus undeserving. Mm-hmm. It's, but even in this fight around right to counsel, like who deserves an attorney? Are they a good tenant or a bad mm-hmm. tenant? And I think that that's a, it's a narrative that's um, seeped in racism. It's a narrative that's seeped in class. And I think we have to confront that narrative all the time, that we have to remember that part of the challenge, too, is that we're talking about housing as a commodity, a, a thing that people make profit off of, as opposed to people's homes. Like when Randy talked about it, he talked about it as the place that was safety for his children. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that housing is a home first. Tuesday marked the end of the inaugural Black Maternal Health Week, a campaign founded and led by the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. The effort was launched to build awareness and activism around the state of black maternal health in the U.S. Here are a few sobering statistics that underscore the need for such a campaign. The United States ranks 32nd out of the 35 wealthiest nations in infant mortality. Black infants are now more than twice 
as likely to die as white infants, a disparity greater than existed in 1850, 15 years before slavery ended. Each year, an estimated 700 to 900 maternal deaths occur in the U.S., which is one of only 13 countries in the world where the rate of maternal mortality is worse than it was 25 years ago. And according to the Centers for Disease Control, black women are three to four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes as their white counterparts. Black women and babies make up a significant number of the cases of infant and maternal mortality in the United States. These statistics were reported in a powerful new investigation in The New York Times magazine called Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life-or-Deaths Crisis. Even more shocking is that, according to the report, and contrary to widely accepted research, education and income offer little protection. The answer to the disparity in death rates has everything to do with the lived experience of being a black woman in America, says our guest, journalist and New York Times magazine contributing writer Linda Virosa. She directs the journalism program at the City College of New York. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great Thank to you. have you with us. Thank a really so powerful piece. Um, why are America's black mothers and babies in a life-or-death situation today? Well, when you go through the research, and I'm very interested in data and research, um, first you have to look at all the things that it is not. So you start to think, well, is it because black women are not taking care of themselves? But then there's studies that say, oh, even when um, pre prenatal care is the same, then still um, black women have low birth weight babies. And then it's sort of like, well, is there some kind of gene? Is there a genetic component? Then there are studies that say, no, actually, because when African immigrants and Caribbean immigrants come here, their babies are equal to white babies in size. But after a generation, then they start to look like African-American babies, even when they're from the poorest countries. And so, after a while, it starts to just say, well, actually, there is something else going on that has to do with being a black woman in America. Talk about what it is. It is race and racism. So it's in two ways. One is just the lived experience of what happens to black women in the country has a physiological effect. And um, there's a wonderful researcher in uh, the University of Michigan who coined the term weathering. And so I think I love the term because it's very poetic. So it says it's like the weathering of a rock by the ocean. But it's also like the weathering, weathering a storm by a house, because it also speaks to resilience and resistance. But it is, there is a physiological effect. So if you are stressed out, and I don't mean, oh, I'm so stressed out, the leaning kind of stress out, but repeated insults to your, to your psyche over and over and over again, it revs up your system so that it actually starts to wear you down, the internal systems of your body. So that's part one of this, is the lived experience of being a black woman in America. The second is the way black women are treated in the healthcare system. And I, I say black women, but I mean black people. And this has been studied ad nauseum. I've read so many studies, my eyeballs want to fall out. But it's hard to get this across. Um, and a lot of people will say, oh, the Tuskegee um, experiment, that's what it's about. And I said the Tuskegee experiment was years ago. We're talking about people who are being mistreated, ill-treated um, right now. 
and that. So if you combine the two and you take a woman who is essentially having a stress test to her body, which is pregnancy and childbirth, and you put her in this volatile situation where she's weathered and worn down by repeated insults, and then she's in a system that maybe isn't out for her best interest, you get a volatile mix. And that would explain why neither education nor income substantially impacts uh, uh, the maternal uh, uh, health. Well, I think what really explains it is what really puts it into stark focus is what happened to Serena Williams. So Serena Williams had her baby in September, and after the baby was born, she started complaining about having um, shortness of breath. She had a history of pulmonary embolisms, which is a blood clot in the lungs. So she was ignored, um, and her, her concerns weren't taken seriously, and it led to a crisis. Presumably, this is the, one of the richest women in the world and one of the most proactive and one of the most powerful, but still her legitimate concerns were ignored at a hospital. And she told the nurse exactly what she needed. She knew what she had. She said she needed a CT scan with contrast and IV heparin, a blood thinner right away. The nurse thought her pain medicine might be making her confused. She insisted soon enough a doctor was performing an ultrasound on her legs. Um, and. Uh, I mean, you have um, uh, the ultrasound revealing nothing, so they sent for a CT. Sure enough, several small blood clots had settled in her lungs. She was right. Uh, minutes later, she had the drip, and she said, I was like, um, listen to Dr. Williams. Yes, <laughs> please, the owner of your own body that you know best. Well, in your piece, you also talk about your, your own experience. So could you tell us what happened uh, in your case? Well, what was interesting for me is I had read a study about college-educated women who have um, more the higher rate of infant mortality, 75 percent related to low birth weight. So I'm thinking, okay, I didn't believe it at first because I was still under the assumption that this was strictly a problem of poor women, which is wrong and terrible, but I still thought, well, okay, I see this. But then when I got pregnant, I ended up, my baby was not progressing, was not large enough, given her gestational age. So my wonderful gynecologist said, you need to go on bed rest and you need to go to a specialist. So I went to the specialist and the specialist was grilling me with all kinds of, do you use cocaine? Do you drink? <laughs> do you? And I'm the health editor of Essence magazine. So I am super into health. I'm very into fitness. <laughs> I am trying to be a role model for good health and take care of myself and my baby. So I was really insulted. Um, do you have all these different kinds of illnesses? I'm like, no, I'm fine. And then I looked up what I had called interuterine growth restriction and it is something that is associated with women who are not taking care of themselves, smoking, drinking, using drugs, or ill. And so I thought, what is wrong with me? It turned out my baby was better, um, uh, not inside of me, but, in, but on the outside. So I had her induced right at term. She was low birth weight. Low birth weight is 5.5 pounds. She was 4 pounds, 13 ounces. She is fine now. She's a healthy, smart, athletic college student. We have 10 seconds. But I thought, is this because of my lived experience of being a black woman in America? Medical, medical apartheid. apartheid. The dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. On Monday's show, we talked to the writer of the New York Times Magazine cover story this week about the shocking child and maternal death rates among African Americans compared to whites 
even today in 21st century America. Yesterday, the city of New York removed a statue of a doctor from Fifth Avenue along Central Park because of that person's treatment of enslaved African-American women in the 19th century. That sound from the removal yesterday outside the Academy of Medicine at Fifth Avenue around 103rd Street. Dr. James Marion Sims was such a leading physician in his day that he became president of the American Medical Association. He was also credited with being ahead of most of his peers as an advocate of good health care for women and founded the institution known as the Woman's Hospital here in New York. He's been called the father of modern gynecology. But that was after Sims, who was from the South and was pro-slavery, performed a series of very painful experimental surgeries only on enslaved women in Alabama from 1845 to 1849 to develop a surgical treatment for a horrible condition called vesicovaginal fistula, an awful complication of obstructed labor during childbirth in some women in which a hole develops to the bladder, causing continual incontinence. Here is NYU historian Jennifer Morgan, happy about yesterday's removal at the scene. He would operate on one woman with the help of the other, and then once that woman had healed, she would then be forced to help him perform these surgeries. The city's public design commission, created by Mayor de Blasio, voted unanimously on Monday to remove the Sims statue and relocate it to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, where his remains are buried. It's the first such removal the commission has approved. Obviously, the women's ability to give informed consent was an issue because they were enslaved. So is the fact that no anesthesia was used and the economic motivation for the slave owner's interests in having Sims try to cure their so-called property. Sims does have his defenders, though, and we'll touch on that too. But here's Mayor de Blasio pretty much forecasting what his public design commission would find on this program back on January 12th. There were many, many uh, factors I think the commission looked at there, including obviously a horrible and painful choice of this individual to experiment on slave women without their consent. Um, the deep concern in the surrounding community, which is largely a community of color, the fact that it was located at a place where there's supposed to be a broader celebration of medical science, and this was a, a very bad example of that, and that there was an alternative site um, to try and respect the fact that there were also contributions that this individual made uh, to science. So that one was, I think, very particular and very specific. But again, the additive reality is to come up with um, something on that site that that speaks to a more positive reality. And I think that was about the specifics of that site. Mayor de Blasio here in January. We'll let our guests pick up the story from there. With me now are Harriet Washington, medical ethicist and author of books including Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present, and Baron Lerner, MD and medical ethicist at NYU and author of books including The Good Doctor, A Father, a Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. Baron and Harriet, thank you so much for joining us. Harriet, you wrote about J. Marion Sims in your book more than a decade ago. What was your take on his legacy? Well, my take on his legacy is that um, Sims was typical of his time. 
The things he did were certainly unacceptable then as they are now. But he's important because he is so typical. The work he, the work he did, the way he abused women of color was consonant with the typical practice of his time. And I just want to offer one little correction, which sure. is actually uh, significant. And that is that we're not talking about informed consent. Informed consent is not the issue here. There was no informed consent practice during Sims' time. But simple consent, the ability to say yes or no to a procedure, was what was that issue here, which was um, universally held out to people who were esteemed, you know, white people, especially white people of property, but withheld from African-Americans um, universally. I'm curious to hear from each of you, how much did you find the Sims story cut and dried from a medical ethics standpoint? And how complicated. Harriet, you want to continue? Sure. One can always find complexities, but the question is, how significant are the complexities? And the reality is not very, because um, the basic abuses were were just that, quite basic. Uh, the Nuremberg Code says the voluntary consent of the subject is absolutely essential. It's a dividing line between the criminal and the acceptable. And it was also the dividing line during Sims' time when always asked permission, although one did not do as doctors do today and give a great deal of information about the studies that you're performing, but you had to get a yes or no. But with enslaved people, their consent was not necessary. You obtained consent from the owner of the enslaved person. And that is the basic um, abuse um, from which a lot of the others are predicated. That was the most important thing. When you have an enslaved person um, whose status precludes consent, you can't give consent if you're enslaved and operating daily under the threat of torture, including medical torture, if you're operating under constraints on your autonomy. You know, they didn't have the right to say yes or no, and that was um, the basic, a basic problem. Of course, the other problem is that they were treated differently than white people were generally in terms of withholding anesthesia for reasons that were racialized, clearly racialized according to the writings of the physicians of, the, of their time. They didn't believe that black people felt pain the way that whites do. And frankly, we still don't believe that black people feel pain the uh, same way that whites do. Our practices today and studies today carry that out. Baron, same question. You know, I think we think about the ethics here, and, and with, it's, it is pretty clear cut. Uh, let's just remind ourselves what we're talking about. These are operations on women that are very invasive, that involve no anesthesia. Uh, the, they were most likely done for the benefit of the slave owners as much as the women themselves. And they were repeated over and over and over. Um, that's bad ethics. That's bad medicine. And What's very important to note is that some people might say, well, it was a different time. It was a time of slavery. This was in the South. Sims was criticized at the time for doing this, and everybody knew that he was doing these operations on these women with no anesthesia. And so I think from an ethical perspective, uh, it's worthy of, of great condemnation. There have been some defenders of Sims. I read an article in the Journal of Medical Ethics from 2006 that argued that while he did perform the surgeries at first on enslaved women only, evidence suggests the women suffering from the fistulas wanted the surgery, and Sims once wrote that he only performed the surgery with consent, 
and that anesthesia was not routinely used on anyone at that time, including by Sims in his later surgeries on white women for the same condition. Do either of you have a take on the accuracy of those historical claims, Baron, you first? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I've seen those writings uh, as well. In other places, Sims writes about admits to the pain and suffering that the women are going through un, under anesthesia, this, this without the anesthesia. So, you know, I, I think when you look back over time and you see a procedure that was done that ultimately did generate success, and especially if you're writing this as a surgeon, as the, as the writer you're citing, who goes to Africa and does the surgery on women, it, it, it's more likely that you're going to look back fondly at, at the doctor who invented the operation that you can now use to help people. But I think if you look at the situation at the time, what was done to these women was brutal. And Harriet, um, I guess you were already kind of answered the question about the uh, the consent part. Consent could not have been informed, but anything you want to add? Yes. I want to add that the basis for claiming the women had offered their consent was Sim's own self-serving accounts, which he made after he had been criticized. And we have to consider the um, credibility of that claim in light of his other work. Now, in the voluminous uh, writings uh, of Sims and about Sims during the time that I have read, I found not only that some of his contemporaries, like Dr. Daniel Hill Williams uh, and others, criticized him, but I also found that Sims actually boasted. He voluntarily spoke of compelling African Americans to undergo experimental procedures. He didn't only operate on these women. He operated on newborns, but only black newborns, in which case he took shoemaker's tools to their skulls in an attempt to separate the bones, in an experimental attempt to address their neonatal tetanus. And he, but before he did this, he took care to take them out of their mother's view. So that tells us it was not consensual. He did not get the mother's permission. Of course, he didn't have to get the mother's permission. And of course, it was not typical to get. In fact, it was it was very unusual, if ever, that the permission of a slave was sought. One slave man who enslaved man who refused permission adamantly and vehemently, Sims addressed this by having the man tied to a barber's chair and forcibly operated to remove his jaw. And he wrote in his medical journal of how, despite the fact that the enslaved man was screaming and trying to get away, he had proven that he could do a procedure whether the subject was willing or not. That shows us these historical facts from Sim's own writings show us in what little regard he took, uh, he held the consent of these women. So I don't think his claims are credible. Baron, I see the city is commissioning something new for that spot along Fifth Avenue, and I also see that three first names of enslaved women who Sims operated on are still known, Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy. Should they be memorialized, or should the city do something else? Do you have an opinion about that? Well, it would be nice to um, do something to honor those women for, for many reasons. Obviously, they... Uh, un, w- without their ability to refuse, put their bodies uh, online for scientific advancement. Um, and uh, in addition, Sims himself has been lauded at, at that particular site for so many years without any concern for these women at all. So I know there have been various proposals 
to put, for example, a statues of those women at that site or something. Um, I think you don't want to just see them as victims uh, by doing that. Um, but I, I think something that would recognize the contributions of women, of African Americans to the history of human experimentation done in an educational way could go a long way toward rectifying some of the problems that exist because the Sim statue was there for so long. Harriet, same question. I have a, um, I think there are many people who could be um, lauded, who could be honored, but I think the perfect candidate is James McCoon Smith a very important African-American physician, the first African-American to earn an MD who had to go to Glasgow, Scotland in order to earn it because medical schools barred him. It was a nakedly racial bar. They would not accept him because he was black. When he went to Glasgow, he was valedictorian of the medical school. When he returned here to New York City, he devoted himself to using his skills as a physician and also as a statistician, because he had gotten a PhD instead in that field at Glasgow as well, to refute scientific racism, the tenets that enabled on enslavement and medical torture in the context of enslavement, making him a very important um, a medical figure. Also, um, Dr. Um, Dr. Sims was the lion of the of the national of the um, New York Academy of Medicine. Uh, I'm a fellow there now myself, um, but he had he would basically ruled the academy. Um, he was thought of very highly there, very influential. Used the academy as his bully pulpit. When Dr. McCune Smith applied for membership, he he applied to be a fellow, and. They asked him to withdraw his application. He refused, and then they decided they were not going to act on it. So he was never admitted to fellowship. I would love to see him admitted to fellowship. I would love to see a statue to him because he was a very important abolitionist and a very important figure in terms of refuting the scientific um, uh, pseudoscientific claims mm -hmm. that supported enslavement and supported claims of black inferiority. Thank so you that's for, my candidate. Thank you for telling that story. Let's take a phone call from Emily in Southern Maryland. Emily, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. And uh, I'm thankful to the two people speaking today about putting the historic context on this uh, statue. Um, my question is about the kind of thoughts about the relocation of the statue to Greenwood Cemetery. Um, I'm wondering, I haven't heard anything about if the commission is planning on providing any kind of support for the recontextualization, um, conservation, or reinterpretation of the statue in that setting. Um, Greenwood is also a site that is interpreting history for a public audience. And in some ways, this seems like um, a kind of notion of taking the statue out of Manhattan and therefore out of the public eye. But in fact, it's still going to be someone's uh, kind of responsibility to uh, interpret it within a site. Um, and so um, I think that that could be a possibility for conversation, too, or even, you know, um, what does it mean to sort of move it to this other location? Um, and I would love for the commission not just to say, yes, we're happy to take it down from its uh, present uh, place and put it somewhere else, but to actually have support and ideas for making that a kind of meaningful move rather than just a sort of out of sight, out of mind. Um, thanks very much. Emily, thank you so much. Either of you want to react to that? Sure. Um, I, my understanding is that there's going to be at least some type of a plaque and, and other educational materials at Greenwood Cemetery, which is great because putting on my historian hat for a second, it would be a shame if 
the Sims statue is moved out of Manhattan and everybody stops thinking about it. I mean, it's nice that it's not there anymore and it's nice he's not being celebrated, but it's still a teachable moment. Why was it in Manhattan for so long? Why did people put it up? Why did it have to get moved? This is a great opportunity for people who visit Greenwood to visit the statue and read about it and learn about the sort of racist environment in this country that permitted Sims to be celebrated for so long. So I think it's a great opportunity. Mary in Inwood, you're on WNYC. Hello, Mary. Hi, um, Brian. I'm uh, overlooking beautiful Inwood Park right this minute. And I wanted to say that, especially in light of your commenter's last remarks, taking the statue down and moving it to Brooklyn and adding a little explanatory plaque really doesn't do the job. J. Marion Sims was an important historical figure. He was honored at the time. He's connected to the New York Academy of Medicine. And why are we running away from history? Um, we're losing something enormous in trying to edit our history to meet today's standards. Um, and I'm very sorry to see it go. Thank you very much. What What about this notion of presentism, Harriet, that Mary brings up? Yeah, if I may, I think that's an important point that she brings up. And I want to point out that, first of all, statues are not historical documents. Moreover, this statue has something in common with the statues of Confederate generals, and that often these statues are monuments to people who um, uh, the prevailing power structure wishes to honor. And as such, this statue is a symbol of racial power. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, son. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Statues are not historical documents. Moreover, this statue has something in common with the statues of Confederate generals, and that often these statues are monuments to people who um, uh, the prevailing power structure wishes to honor. And as such, this statue is a symbol of racial power. If you want to learn history, read a book. There are resources set out for it. The statues don't exist to um, educate people about history. They exist to exert power over communities, reminders of who basically is in power and who can compel. And um, one little brief parenthetical note, um, it was mentioned that statues haven't been removed before, but if I, I recall correctly, the, the much-hated civic virtue statue was indeed removed as a result of community pressure before Dr. Sims. So. And I think that the last caller, I'd like to point out to her that we are addressing history. We're correcting it. Right. Well, as you heard in the news, of course, the potential renaming of Cape Town International Airport is uh, foremost on the on the nation's minds today. And it turns out that Julius Malema's call for the renaming was not that far-fetched. 
Because the Transport Ministry told EWN over the weekend that Winnie Marikazela Mandela's name was amongst a list of names that was in fact submitted for the renaming of the airport. And the Airports Company of South Africa has also confirmed that Transport Minister Bladen Simandi directed it to facilitate the name change process for the airport in March this year. Now, after... Um, the EFF's Julius Malema made that call at um, Winnie Manikazela Mandela's funeral on Saturday. There's been an outpouring of public support on social media. And as you heard, Kevin Brandt also talking to people at the airport today. Um, and in fact, I mean, I saw immediately, almost immediately after he made that, that call, uh, there was that entry in Wikipedia that was suddenly changed to rename the, the um, airport to Winnie Marikazela Mandela. Um, airport. So EWN reporter Kevin Brunt has been at the airport this morning. He does join us on the line now. Kevin, thanks so much for your time. A very good afternoon to you, Melanie. I, I heard all the sound bites there. There seems to be a lot of support for, for a name change. Definitely. A lot of people here at the airport feel that um, it is right that the name of Cape Town International Airport should be changed. There's dominant support in particular for late former President Nelson Mandela. A lot of people feel that Cape Town is rich in history um, in terms of Mandela being released um, here in Cape Town from Robben Island. And also um, with regard to the role that Cape Town played in, in establishing a democracy within South Africa. So a lot of support for the late former president, but also for Winima Digizela Mandela. As you correctly stated there, that as you correctly stated there, that EFF leader Julius Malema called at a funeral this past weekend for the airport to be renamed, and the transport department then also indicated that they are indeed busy with that process. So we're still awaiting a, a bit more information from the arts and culture department, who is also involved in this project in terms of cost, but also in terms of the process going forward, and just giving us a bit more clear of a timeline as to when we can expect the official name change to take place, Melody. Um, what is the process now? Once Arts and Culture, they are now in consultation, I believe, with the Department of Transport. What's the next step? Well, the officials say that they are now also consulting with the relatives of, of the icons uh, who are now being considered for the name change of the airport. Um, as I've also stated, it is Nelson Mandela, Winnie Madikizela Mandela, but there's also Robert Sabukwe, as well as Albertina Sisulu. And as the statement stated from the Transport Department, they are amongst some other people also being considered. So we're still waiting for information as to who are some of the other icons that the department are also considering and also just the way forward in terms of getting us to a date in particular as to when the name will officially change, Melanie. Good night, Kilo. To people in California's north, the name Kilo Niasha is familiar, like an aunt or another relative. To them, she was a voice of resistance heard on public radio, mostly heard on her show called Freedom is a Constant Struggle. To former members of the Black Panther Party, she was Sister Kilo, a former member of the New Haven chapter. During the murder trial of Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins in 1970, Sister Kilo served as a legal assistant to attorney Charles Gary, who defended many top Panthers. During the trial, Kilo was known as Pat Galliot. After the party, 
She suffered from MS, multiple sclerosis, which left her paraplegic and in a wheelchair. Yet MS neither defined her nor stopped her. She became an immensely talented artist. She worked as a journalist, commentator, and a host of radio shows. She worked for years as a supporter of Hugo Yogi Pinnell, the late political prisoner. She was an endless and brilliant source of resistance to the system. She became a beloved and respected elder for young people in the Bay Area. We remember Kilu Niasha, mother, artist, commentator, revolutionary, and inspiration. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Context of White Supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, April 21st, 2018. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts. <clears throat> observations, counter-racist suggestions, or if you just have commentary you want to share on some of the audio segments we just heard, the number to dial 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. That's it. A uh, few things we will get to before we get to the callers. Uh, first of all, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. You can visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. Blog address again, racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you hit the blog, look in the top right corner. You will see the PayPal button. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Huge thanks to all the folks who have supported us for nearly a decade. I hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can also support the cows uh, via Gus's Amazon wish list. Uh, it is listed at Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, it's linked on my blog. Uh, I will tweet and post the listing as well. Uh, again, huge gratitude to all the folks who have nabbed items from the list over the years. Uh, really hope that listening to the cows, listeners, investors uh, have received accurate, constructive information on what white supremacy racism is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white, and what we non-white people can do to solve this problem immediately. Other things I wanted to make sure to address, uh, we will provide ample time. Uh, if any 
listeners are in mourning, having difficulty with the passing of former First Lady Barbara Bush. Share your thoughts if you're having difficulties with that. Next, speaking of uh, passing or mourning, uh, just being truthful, any listeners who watched the final episode of Scandal, uh, just keep being truthful, being truthful. Uh, If you could let us know if you tuned in for Shonda Rhimes' last installment of Scandal. I guess that should be uh, a cowbell as well. I didn't even know that the this was going to be the final season of that uh, abomination. Uh, medical apartheid, you heard Harriet A. Washington, the brilliant Harriet A. Washington. Uh, I <clears throat> have such regard for her scholarship, her work. I'm so, so thankful. It's been years now, but I'm even now, I'm so thankful that we were able to read uh, on the book club, Medical Apartheid, and to give the full title, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present published in 2007. I'm so glad that we were able to read that book uh, on the book club here on the cows in 2016. That is one of, uh, that's on my top five. Uh, I said that uh, immediately. I had not read that book until we read it on the book club. It is amazing, absolutely amazing. I think any of the the folks who participate uh, tonight, if you Participate. I was going to say if you participated, but then, you know, most people listen to the archives. So uh, I suspect that there probably are a number of folks who did not participate actively in the book club, but might have listened to the archives. If you participated in or listened to the archives of medical apartheid and you have any thoughts, that was uh, Harriet Washington, who was commenting on the removal of race soldier Dr. J. Marion Sims statue in Central Park. He has a myriad of statues. He has statues in South Carolina and Alabama. I didn't hear anything about his statues uh, coming down in the other areas where he is worshipped religion of white supremacy. But we talked about him extensively in her book. And I remember that exact segment where he did the mutilation of the enslaved black person, their jaw. I think that might've been Sam. Uh, If I I remember that specifically, I remember the section where she talked about in medical apartheid, taking the uh, shoe instruments to use on black babies. I remember all of that explicitly in medical apartheid. And in fact, I can even connect that to Nelson Mandela because she talked about one of the final chapters in that book, one of the best books I've ever read, top five easily, Medical Apartheid, Harriet Washington. If you've anybody who says, oh man, Gus, need a book, Medical Apartheid, put that at the top of the list. If you've not read it, there you go. That's the next book you need to read, but can even connect that to South Africa. The final chapter, she talks about the global effort of chemical and biological warfare against the black people and how this her book is mostly focused or exclusively focused on black people in the states. But she does have that portion at the end talking about the campaign in South Africa to use chemical and biological warfare against black people who were fighting against white supremacy like Winnie Mandela. And they specifically said 
Uh, excuse me, she, Harriet A. Washington, brilliant scholar, specifically wrote that they had campaigns, whites in South Africa, and talked about, hmm, I wonder what kind of experiments we could do to totally change that Nelson Mandela Madiba so he's not functioning in a logical counter-racist manner. I wonder if we could do something to him so that he's totally functioning in a different way. They had talked about poisoning him. Uh, and even some of the people that participated in these talks cooked one of his meals. That's one of the most important passages in the book, I think. I read that all the time when I hear non-white people get uh, riled up and talking about how uh, Madiba was a coon and a sellout and no, he didn't do anything. He helped all the white because they did that most recently when uh, Winnie Mandela, grandsister Winnie Mandela passed. They did that again. Uh, we're talking bad about Madiba, and I, I go immediately medical apartheid and read that passage. I don't want to hear any talking bad about Madiba as a victim. Let's talk about whites sitting down to concoct plans to totally change how someone thinks and behaves while we have them in greater confinement. If that means an experiment, if that means a lobotomy, whatever that means, let's see how we can do this to further our control of the niggers. I mean, kaffirs, that's what they say over there. Kaffirs, white supremacy, medical apartheid. I don't have enough time. I could talk gloriously about that book for a long time. And we read, I mean, it's a lengthy book. We spent months reading medical apartheid. I was so elated to hear uh, her talk. And then to hear when the race soldier called in to try to be mad about the removal of the statue, to hear her be so eloquent in refuting the white supremacist uh, jargon that she attempted to insert in the brush. Harriet A. Washington, Black Brilliance, anybody who is in need of a book, if you have not read full title, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. That should be your next book. No questions asked. With that, if you could not use metaphors for the Saturday broadcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, I heard a number of metaphors this week. There were so many. I'm hoping that I can remember a few of the ones that I heard uh, throughout the week, uh, but it just further reminded me of why on this particular program, I request that we not use metaphors. Many, I thought my memory would not fail. The metaphor that I was thinking, or at least one of the metaphors that I was thinking of that I thought should be referenced uh, or brought up uh, when people say, are you going to be a Nazi about this? This will often be with regards to enforcement of a rule or policy uh, of some sort. Like, you know, you're not supposed to use more than six staples a day. Are you going to be a Nazi about the staples? My gosh, I had to use seven staples. You're going to be a Nazi about this? Even that metaphor because uh, generally when people say that, they mean Nazi, meaning are you going to be really strict about enforcement of policy and procedure? Are you attempting to be very streamlined and efficient about how we do this or very strict about how we go about doing this process or this procedure? That's often what they mean when they say that. The fact that you would have a regime of mass murder, that that becomes common usage for 
efficiently or strictly doing something. Strict enforcement of policy is, we think immediately of white supremacists, Adolf Hitler and company, slaughtering millions, so they say. The metaphors often reflect racism, white supremacy. Another one that I was, it was a whole, lots of them came to mind this week. The metaphor throwing shade, I would suggest not using it. I suspect if Mr. Fuller was a little younger, if he were young enough to hear that term frequently, that term would be in the word guide. We should not be using that term the way that I hear it used. If somebody is quote unquote throwing shade, they are generally saying something derogatory about another individual. Oftentimes I feel it's someone non-white saying something derogatory about an individual and somehow the term throwing shade, I process that is I am detracting light from you. I am applying darkness to you or somehow darkening you. That that term should not be used. In my view, it is reinforcing racism, white supremacy. It is suggesting that saying something derogatory about a person is somehow darkening them. Anything that is suggesting uh, vileness or degradation with blackness, all of that should be ceased immediately. We should not be using the term throwing shade, casting shade, any derivative of that should not be used. It is reinforcing white supremacist concepts and ways of thinking that devalue black people, blackness. As I was saying, this broadcast, if we could not use metaphors, I would be super appreciative. Many of them support the system of white supremacy and racists frequently practice deception by using metaphors in a manner where they can suggest that these two concepts are equivalent. They're one and the same, if not twins, and often that is not the case at all. Uh, It's one of the ways that they practice master deception, racism. Many victims of white supremacy, including Gus, we've been exposed uh, to this misbehavior for centuries. uh, And being victims of white supremacy, many of us, we are still learning. As such, sometimes we will substitute a metaphor for logic when we have not really come to a conclusion and often that substitution it furthers confusion if we could be explicit direct about what it is we want to say that would be great if we need a bit more time to think about what we want to say that is totally acceptable Uh, with that if folks also could use their mute button That would be super appreciated if you know you are in a noisy environment. Uh, Just use your mute button. You can say whatever you want to and then uh, mute your line. Really appreciate it if you uh, have multiple things that you want to say. If you could just take five minutes to share your comments. Uh, And then once everyone else has had at least one chance to speak, you can unmute your line. Come back in and share your additional thoughts or questions. With that, uh, I think the questions I asked again, if we have any of the folks who participated in medical uh, apartheid, uh, if you want to share, that was Harriet A. Washington that we got to hear any of the folks who heard that book. uh, If you have any endorsements about the constructive value of that text and if anyone being truthful, anyone tune in to see the final episode of Scandal this week. And if anyone needs a moment uh, to share thoughts, remembrances of former First Lady Barbara Bush. 
641-715-3640. The code again, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hello. Uh, yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Good evening, everyone. Um, I watch Scandal. I don't know why. I never watched it before, and I was confused because I did not keep up with the show. I don't know. I guess I was just really bored. I don't know. Um, you know, the crazy lady who said her dog wrote a book, passed away. Uh, maybe she, her mind needed to rest. Um, but seriously, this weekend I was ill, and I did go to the doctor. And that is, you know, thought I wasn't having a baby or anything. I just had a cold. And um, I do... I never really thought about all the racism and stuff till I went. Um, I talked to four different medical professionals. No one said my name was such and such. I've never been to the, I was in Macon, Georgia. I've never been to the doctor where the doctor or the nurse and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. And um, I was like, I need a friend because I can't go to the doctor by myself because I was just, I was just really discombobulated, I guess, because I was ill. Um, but I did have my cell phone, which I really do have, so I did. Um, towards the end when it was wrapping up, I called my mom so she could listen to hear what they were saying. And they prescribed some blood pressure medicine for me. And I had that before. And the first time I had that, I had a black doctor a while, long time ago, and she gave me a sample or whatever. And she was like, well, just go take this medicine. They just walked away. And I was like, my mother was like, they're not giving you a sample. So I was like, yeah, you're not giving me a sample. And then the lady just walked away. And um, I, I told her I didn't have a doctor. The doctor came in, and she was like, well, I refer you to this place. They help you regardless of income. And I don't know where that came from because my address and everything's on file. I need the insurance to get due to the earnings of care. I live in the highest. Um, the zip code I live in has the highest median income. I just looked it up the verifying call, so I won't say anything crazy. Um, so this is, I, I live, you know, it's a hard place to access this earnings care without a vehicle, the buses only run during rush hours, so there's no bus during the day, so I don't know how she thought that, you know, I didn't, you know, I'm single, all that information is there. Um, they actually three or four times about birth control. I'm like, I said no. I mean, I don't know what part of no you don't get. I, it's still, you know, not true. Um, so, yes, you have to be careful if you, if you have to go to the doctor, find a buddy, I'm on a mission. I don't know who's going to be my friend, but I'm going to need a friend to at least go to the doctor in general because I was just like, I've never heard such a thing. The people, the doctor doesn't introduce herself. And the first person was the nurse. She at least did say I'm the nurse. She was African-American. And I asked the point blank, do you know any black doctors? Like, hint, hint, I do want to go to the doctor, but I kind of need a black Do Like, do you know any? And I guess, I don't know, she didn't know any because... She never came back with any names. Um, and, again, I am educate, college educated. And right now, you know, income does change. So right now I do, not to, you know, just to add to the situation, I do earn six figures. So 
it is primarily, I definitely do believe, and my experience is, it is a racial thing. Thank you. Well, they, I think, did emphasize, <clears throat> excuse me, I think they did emphasize in the clip that we heard uh, talking about the black maternal mortality rates that it was not class at all uh, that they were seeing these problems even with <clears throat> they were seeing uh, these health problems even with black females who were making what whites would call making pretty good salary uh, were you know well educated and they were still seeing these problems uh, suggesting strongly that it is white supremacy racism and exactly the health concerns that you're talking about <clears throat> I hope you're able uh, to to get those addressed uh, with a, a black physician if you can continue to your search if anybody knows of any black physicians in the Georgia area that would be grand uh, to share until justice at gmail.com Drop and then one tip I heard, I'm sorry, I didn't mm -hmm. mean to cut you off, but I heard from one of the other callers, and I did look this up, and I kind of found some, but I didn't really, I don't know anybody, so I don't know how the black doctors were, but when I looked up the doctors and my insurance, I did pick the language of Swahili, and that was a hint, because they you can't call them as black, but usually if they if they give a language as Swahili, there's a good chance, at least, they might be African black, so I have done that as well. Hmm. Okay. <clears throat> well, if anybody knows any information about black physicians in the Georgia area, that would be uh, great help for information. And that's something that we talked about uh, for a long period on the broadcast in terms of uh, if you are not in good health, if you need to go see a doctor uh, to have someone go with you, they don't even necessarily have to be uh, the most codified person, right? That <laughs> they don't they don't have to have read every uh, thing that Mr. Fuller wrote or whatever the case is, but just so that they can listen, so that they can just ask reasonable, logical questions just to have a second person uh, who's there who can see things like what you just said. Oh, wow. The doctor came in and didn't even, you know, say, oh, I'm, you know, Dr. Such and Such. Nice to meet you. Da -da -da -da. They didn't even do the normal courtesy thing. Like, man, I don't know about these folks. The nurse seemed to, you know, not be as friendly as well. Like just little things like that where they can help because, you're not supposed to be, you know, in your right mind if you're not feeling well to just have someone who can help out with that. That is huge. Uh, if you can just have a buddy, buddy, so even if you can just have a buddy system set up where, hey, if something happens, you know, I'll try to, to be there for you so I can go to the doctor with you and vice versa. Or maybe you can have one or two people uh, that you can, you know, kind of call and help out with that, because that is really, really important. Black health, black health, super important. Um other folks that we've not heard from from at all, uh, if you have commentary, uh, line should be open. Proceed. Yes. Can I speak? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, first of all, I would like to uh, thank you, Gus, for um, creating this show um, for a long time. Um, I'd like to say I, I remember first encountering you um, in Blog Talk Radio, and I remember you had a sign with a white family and you on the sign that says white people are the problem. And I believe that what caught my attention and I started listening to your show ever since. Um, secondly, um, I would like to suggest to the readers that I found beneficial and constructive is that um, your podcast and your show usually is like two to three hours. So I use that time to go hiking. So um, I figured that I can be out in the outdoors, get healthy, and also listen 
and um, be safe away from, you know, racist people. And um, most importantly, um, I came up with this concept as I was hiking today. It may sound funny, but I was thinking, um, I'm just going to throw this out there to, you know, just to see what people say. Um, I wrote some notes. I was thinking about um, an anti-white supremacy religion, um, you know, because I think it's we're we're uh, black people are spiritual people. So I think in constructive, if if we can sort of have like uh, saints that we look up to, you know, like uh, Dr. Cresswell saying. Winnie Mandela, all the people that, you know, that contribute to the struggle and also, you know, have like an Old and New Testament and then somewhere down the line have like gospel, the gospel according to Farrakhan or the gospel according to Nellie Fuller, et cetera, or like the Acts of Noble Jirali, et cetera, um, a book of the genesis of blackness and like the revelation of justice and then we like honor like the major saints um and have like you know just have like uh like stories poems constructive instructions against racism and also like when it comes to like prayer like you pray in comedic yoga poses you know just um have sort of cuz i i i i research like the other more men's in Scientology where, you know, they make their own religions and they have their own people, which helps them gain more political and economical power. I say, hey, why can't we just do that? You know, and, and also revive revise it and improve it over the years in order for it to help us um, live 100%, you know, our minds and our physical attributes to stop this, you know, this system of racism. So. Um, that's all I had to say. <laughs> hmm. Religion of anti-white supremacy. Fascinating. Let's see if other folks have uh, thoughts on that. I'm any religion as long as racist man, racist woman, racist child, they do not uh, co-opt it uh, and end up trying to come and practice with next to me. I would be willing to uh, to process, think about it, see if it's constructive. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Hello, can I be heard? Evening, Puff. Hello, hello. All right. Um, just want to make a few comments about the uh, commentary today. Um, the first one is a pattern that I noticed, you know, I, I, I see the white patterns and one of the white patterns is um, the monuments that they have constructed, they don't want to be taken down. Uh, even when it's, you know, involved murder. And, uh, well, one of the first things I want to call out is, like you said, you know, in your commentary, um, Sims, Dr. Sims operated on... Uh, slave women and and this was number one without anesthesia and two conducted his experiments I mean they they would bleed to death and the, the babies he delivered would too 
you know, and it, it was very, but he gets a statue, like who commissioned this statue and why, why should he be recognized at all, you know, but, you know, again, you know, slaves are not people in, 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 in their context. So, um, I just want to notice a pattern, you know, regardless of what they did, they defend what they did. Cause you notice that the white callers, um, were defending this person. And it's like, no matter what he did, I mean, how many people he killed, you know, or whatever, they were not people, they weren't white people. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a notice there. And then, you know, tying into that is those people aren't worth anything or they're worth less. A white, a white life is worth more than a black life. And, uh, is what they're saying by that, you know, and they say this in, you know, all contexts, um, going to a different vein, you know, the creator of scandal, uh, has a hundred million dollar deal with Netflix. And, uh, she has t several Shonda Rhimes has victim of racism. Shonda Rhimes has, you know, several, you know, development deal, a development deal with, with Netflix and, um, worth a hundred million dollars. But, you know, in that same context, they gave another show creator $300 million, and she has less than a resume with, you know, that whole thing. And, you know, it goes to the point of what Monique is saying. Why does Amy Schumer get $13 million, but, you know, an Oscar winner, you know, same thing. You know, why does she get only 500000 and then Wanda Sykes has the same, she has the same agent as Amy Schumer, and she only got offered by Netflix $250,000. So it's, it's the same game that they keep perpetuating, that we're worth less and our lives aren't worth anything. I mean, you know, as and also this week, you know, we know this about the Starbucks, you know, thing. I mean, how does a cup of coffee get you an arrest record. Like, who would even, like, I, I just don't. I, I'll go ahead and mute. Go ahead, uh, next person. Appreciate that, Puff. Much obliged. I would just say compensatory call-in for working on using words uh, as best we can. Uh, I would not call it a, a game. Uh, I would call it economic terrorism. I mean, if we're talking... Uh, I mean, we're talking a disparity of hundreds of millions of dollars, and then they have the audacity to talk about a wage gap or anything else. I mean, that's that's economic terrorism, uh, in my opinion. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. How's it going, everyone? This is uh, Blackmail Engineer. Um, just wanted to comment on some of the clips. There, uh, the clip about the foreclosed homes and the data analysis that went on uh, in the city. One thing I just noticed is that whites will spend millions of dollars analyzing and pontificating the effects of racism when in actuality, it, it really just seems like, or that I know that they already know the effects of racism this is just another way to, I guess, pay some white people to have a job or um, keep food on their tables. 
because I, I just don't understand what what is the end goal in doing studies on racism when we know they aren't going to actually change the system or destroy it. Um, another thing, I was at a rally today. Um, there was a black male that was shot in Baker County, Florida. He was shot by a race soldier, shot in broad daylight, killed. Um, the man's name is Guard Frazier. Uh, some backstory on him. Guard Frazier is from a prominent family in the Baker County area in Florida. This is the North Florida area. Uh, his father was a JSO officer, Jackson um, Sheriff's Office officer, um, police officer family, retired, you know, pension. Um, his father had multiple violent um, incidents on his record. Um, his father actually shot a black child in Jacksonville and was fired. He literally pulled out a gun and shot a child and uh, was fired. The sheriff even said that the shooting was just completely unjustified, had to fire him. Um, he gets hired in Baker County and uh, he's able to retire in Baker County after he's fired from Jacksonville. Just something to note. But and Guard Fraser's grandfather was a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and state senator. Um, so also remember that, you know, when whites say that racism is just ignorance or um, something that poor white people just know in the backwoods of the South, no, these are obviously intelligent whites, state senators running the country. And Guard Fraser shot this black male in the head and in the, at his house, black male is dead, dying. The state deputies come within 30 minutes. Guard Frazier ha has not gone to jail once. Um, he has not been tried. The case has never been seen in front of a state attorney, um, just sitting on the desk. And uh, we had a vigil for him and we walked, marched, you know, the hoopla, but it was just, um, just, Kind of sad to know that this black male was shot and nothing has been done. The man has not gone to jail. Everyone knows who who it is. It's just his family, you know, powerful whites um, in the area. And I'll end it there. What was the name of the victim again? The victim's name was DJ um, Brazier or Broder. Sorry, DJ Broder. Um, let me, uh, there's a Facebook page, Justice for DJ. Uh, if you go on the Facebook page, you'll be able to see it. Um, this might blow up nationally. I don't know, but this is, you know, pretty prominent. Um, his family is just well, very well connected. But DJ, um, DJ Brazier. Gotcha. We'll check into that and, uh, I will share information, uh, with listeners, uh, as well, if they want to check into it more, I know we have a lot of listeners down in the Florida area. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, proceed. May I be heard? Greetings, Red in Nevada. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Hello, everyone. Um, unfortunately, no uh, stories from the Las Vegas Review Journal. I'm actually in the process of moving, but... Um, I, I did want to 
um, definitely at least comment on the clips. And the thing that I didn't like um, about the, 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 I guess maybe like the first clip about uh, black maternal problems was that, and this is definitely BGQ, of course, but the um, metaphor of weathering, how it shows, how um, the female, she said that it shows like resistance and um, a resilience. And I forgot the other word that she used, but it seems like if there was this such resilience, it almost sounds like, you know, how people have said before, well, these types of issues or this type of situation makes us black people or racism makes black people stronger and it's not there's no i don't see the facts that go along with that and especially if you know this weathering quote unquote is making people stronger it's not actually you're not seeing the results in them having healthy babies and then to keep going back to the poverty thing and um, i i think last week or maybe the week before last um when I was reading like from the, the newspaper clipping about um, the, at that time they were talking about basically the effects of housing discrimination. And even with poor whites, poor whites were still more than likely to be approved for the um, governmental uh, housing loans. I think it was the FHA loan, something like that. So it's like this still, uh, it, it's kind of like, I guess I'm, maybe I'm just, maybe just frustrated today or whatever, but this thing about, you know, people of color and also, you know, poor people. The people of color thing was um, also in the clip from um, uh, Harriet Washington. And I, I do have the book. I actually bought the book after I went back in the archives and I listened. And I, I definitely appreciate that book even more so than any, any other book that I've ever heard of because it seems like, you know, it, it, it's something that even though it was, you know, it's a few years old, However, it's still very um, contemporary. It's still happening. It's not, it, it's a, I don't, I guess I'll, I don't want to, you know, keep going on because I guess I was going to maybe use a metaphor, but I, I definitely appreciate that book. I know that um, things about Ohio, it really sticks in my mind, but I know that there was a portion where she that wrote about, um, I think there was a, a clinic or something in Cleveland or Cincinnati um, that was not really getting informed consent to um, x-ray maybe children and I, I know that that was you know you know a, a problem and I guess the last thing that I would say and I, I also appreciated Miss um, Washington correcting that success that that racist when she was saying you know a statue is a document and in no way shape or form is I thought the definition of a document, at least by Webster's um, definition, is, you know, an actual, maybe a paper or whether electronic or physical that contains, you know, some type of information. But I guess I'll leave it there. Um, thank you for allowing me to share. Appreciate that, uh, Red Dev. And certainly that is something we talked about a lot. And if we're talking about health and white supremacy, uh, Renelia Randall, she was a guest on the program. She wrote the book Dying While Black. Actually, she was the first person who made the suggestion about if you have to go have a doctor's visit to make sure you take a friend who is healthy so that they can listen and advocate for you. But Vernelia uh, Randall, she said uh, she was one of the first person. She spent a lot of time, her first time being on the program. She's been a guest multiple times, but she said that 
uh, that myth, uh, really, and I think she was emphatic, that nonsense about somehow slavery and centuries of terrorism has made black people stronger. That is nonsense. It has not. Uh, that abuse makes you sick. It makes you weaker. Uh, and we just, you know, or really racists perpetuate this mythology that, oh, yeah, black people, they're super strong. All those lashes and what have you have just made them super, super strong. And that is total nonsense. No evidence to support that at all. Uh, and I, I always appreciate that being uh, refuted emphatically. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary. Have you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, black male engineer here again. I wanted to correct myself. The victim of racism that is deceased, his name is DJ Brodus II. I uh, pronounced his name incorrectly. DJ Brodus II. Brodus, B-R-O-D-U-S? B-R-O-A-D-U-S. Got it. Awesome. Oh, okay. I will share information. Uh, it seems I even have some uh, reports about the rally perhaps i will share so that people can get more information uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all if you have commentary proceed can i hear uh yes sir your volume is a little low caller in florida Let's see if i can turn it up can you hear me guys that is better well, thank you very much sir Greetings to that's the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, as far as the the scandal sitcom, I haven't really watched one episode of it. <laughs> to be honest, I just only heard of it. But um, to, to get into some of the uh, the audio segments and some of the events of the week, I wanted to mainly start on the the Starbucks uh, predicament and that. I believe on the workplace racism on Thursday, the guy was talking about, I guess, unconscious bias, implicit bias. Like, I, I wonder if it's more than one definition for that term of they're using the same definition. I don't even know if he um, explained like a definition for those words in that clip. Um, but I do agree that the I guess they're supposed to be closing the stores. Like I don't think it's going to have an effect on racism itself. Um, but just and another thing I wanted to mention is like when they first reported that story, and then days later, okay, they they omitted that they were only in there for two minutes. Like that's. Um, like very, very intense racism right there to leave that part out because when they do that, they take stuff out of context. And what that does is how people react to it, especially black people. Um, like a lot of us, we're conditioned to think, well, you know, they must have, you know, done something or done this or that. Uh, and, you know, I know we have our victimization but just leaving something out like that can be very major. And it just shows how the racism was was right there as soon as they walked in and was denied the uh, the bathroom privilege. And 
the uh, race soldier was constantly trying to get them to order a leave. And she made that white connection over the phone. Um, and the, the law enforcement officials came to the business establishment and said they had to leave, and then that was pretty much it. So racism, white supremacy is, is real, and I'm not sure if they were less confused or not, but uh, the people all in the the uh, the coffee shop they was they were saying I guess you know well why are you doing this and that but I still highly suspect them as racist because they could have done more. Um, it's, it's more it's not really white privilege like they still practicing racism because they could have you know maybe like made a barricade around or something like. <laughs> Like, hey, you can't you can't take these guys out of here, you know, like they just sit they still sitting there comfortably from their desk or their tables enjoying their coffee or not even getting anything. Like so much can be analyzed about that. And they use the word reconcile. Um at least from an article that I seen, I guess the, the white woman wants to reconcile with, with them, I guess, but she the one that was practicing racism, so it's it's kinda confusing. Um but I like I thought about that that quote like white people don't get fired they get transferred and they were saying she lo- she no longer works like the words she no longer works to that particular branch so she possibly was transferred I'm guessing I could be incorrect um, but that like to to get on another story like there was an officer or two officers that was shot um, like in Trenton down here in Florida. But they never really released the, the image. At least I haven't seen an image of the person who did the killing. And I suspect it could be a white person. But I looked it up. It was a 59-year-old person named John Hebert. I think that's what his name is. Um, but, you know, they, they're not using the terms black identity extremists and white identity extremists. So uh, it's interesting now they are reporting these stories. Uh, and the last one is the the uh, the evictions. Like I've been meaning to mention that. Like there are a lot of black people, like calling up to the courthouse or uh, coming in to get a copy of the final judgments because see, it's a failure for them to obtain like proper shelter, getting uh, an apartment, or obtain an employment. Or uh, their children are having trouble getting into a, a good school and they just need that one sheet of paper uh, with a certification stamp on it, I guess, to prove something that they don't owe any kind of debt or something. Uh, but that part where she was saying, you know, hey, the the lawyers and the, the judges, they all know each other. But I think what she left out was that they're white. Like, that's significant. Okay, it's, it's white attorneys. It's white judges and they and they have that bond it's that a white supremacist bond they have um and I, I just wanted to add that in and that's all i have for now and thanks for allowing me to share indeed white judges white attorneys white uh property owners white land owners that 
they all know and hang out with each other. I've seen that sort of thing consistently where they're probably going to Christmas parties and probably got relatives or other folks in common. Uh, that's huge. Uh, and you go there and you go there as the person facing eviction as they talked about and you don't know any of these people. You don't know the procedures. This might be your first time being there. In fact, as they stated in the clip, you might be wrangling just trying to get into the building. Uh, if you don't know what all the rules and regulations are about what you can bring in or can you have your cell phone or water bottle and all that. I mean, system of racism, white supremacy. And they included, I don't think I include, they had additional details that some of these evictions are not for, you know, six thousand dollars eight thousand like massive sums of money they were talking some of these evictions are for like in fact i think they said the average these evictions will be for you know two hundred dollars three hundred like a very very in my view pitiful small amount of money to toss you know a family out uh of a house out of a residence and cause all this turmoil over i mean just a very very trifling sum of money uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Folks, we've missed uh, completely. Any folks that we've not heard from at all who had a hand up? Can I be heard? Greetings, yes, ma'am. Hi, thank you. Um, okay, I'll start off with um, the medical apartheid. Um, I did participate, not maybe every single Friday, but I participated. And for extra excitement, my son ordered um, them to hold that book at Barnes and Noble, so I drove him after school to go pick it up so he can keep up. So I read it, and I even transferred it to someone else so they can read it. So it, it I shared. So um, it was a great book, very, very, very good book. I think I'm going to buy another one so I can read it again and keep it in my own personal library because that really helped. Um, listening to her clip um, about an hour or so ago, that that was refreshing because it may, I've been thinking about medical apartheid often, actually, since we've read it because it was um, so important to me. And um, I, I appreciate how she was just saying it wasn't just um, African-American women. It was black people j just in general who tend to um, suffer. And then it made me think back to how um, when I would take Tajay to the um the doctors every even to get your checkups and they're trying to give you these shots and they want to give them a, a, a HPV or whatever the shot is for the ladies and they would just keep forcing it on them. It's like, well, that's for, that's not for, that's for girls. That's not for guys. Well, yeah, but he's gonna have sex. Um, I said, well, no, no, he's not. He's just doing high. And they really try to force it and bring another doctor in and bring another. Hey, get out of here with that. Um, no, no, no. Put it in the book. So that was wonderful for me. Um, scandal. I've never, ever, ever, ever seen Scandal. Um, but the ladies, any lady that I've come in contact with that's um, black, 
they swear by scandal. If you part your list to say anything about scandal that's negative, they'll let you know, hey, you just haven't watched. You just don't get it. You just don't know it. You know? So it's, it's, it's a tr- trip. Or it's sad how many of us are really watching it. And we're right there ready. And you can look on um, social media and they're sad because of this last uh, episode. And oh, it's terrible. Um, Nancy, was it Nancy Reagan? Oh, what's that? The other? Barbara Bush. <laughs> oh, so um, what else? What, what was on the list? Um, oh, no, I can't remember. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. But I did get um find a child um to do the um that read the book. Um, I didn't have to find her. I I knew her. I was very close with her mom, and she's 13, and she read the uh, book that we're reading, The Hate Gate. So I sent you an email, so I'll resend it um, after I check um, the social media. And um, then we'll just go from there on Thursday with the um, book. And uh, I think that's it because I'm having a brain freeze. But thank you so much for taking my call. Indeed. Our mom in the Bay Area, The Hate You Give, this coming Friday. We will be all done, final session. Uh, If you know of any younger folks... Uh, who read the book, wrote about the book. If they read it for pleasure, that's fine too. Uh, Please tell them. We would absolutely be overjoyed to hear from them this Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, as we conclude Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. Other folks we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, hi. Good evening, everybody. Um, I uh, This is a caller from Wisconsin, a software developer from Wisconsin. Um, I actually had a, a couple of uh, incidents this week that I wanted to impart, and I think one of them will sort of tie in nicely to the racial dislocation um, clip that was on earlier. Uh, the first one was actually a very tacky email that was sent to my mother from a racist suspect. She, my mother is actually um, the head of the family reunion committee this year, and she's been posting things on Ancestry.com, and apparently uh, there's some racist suspects who may or may not be quote-unquote related to us and got one of her emails when she posted our family, and this was the response they sent to my mother. Um, Hi, it's nice to hear from you. I would love to come to the reunion. Unfortunately, I have dementia and need a babysitter. I'm not a very good example of good genes, but I would so love to know you and yours. I think our relationship may be through my paternal grandfather. All other grandparents were immigrants from Scandinavia, but I've always known we were some black. My son used to be surprised when he first looked in the mirror because he wasn't. Now my grandson wants to be black. I have black cousins, and at a reunion, we were all playing football. He told his mom. Later, she was talking to our cousin and said, my son wants to be black. She said, oh, let my little white boy be a nigger. So now he is. I am unfortunately still white as the driven snow. It's revolting. In my ethnic graph, I have Nigerian, North African, Middle Eastern, Jew, and Eastern European. 
My dad, his brothers, and sisters have pretty dark skin. Some have nappy hair. One has blue eyes. The rest of the eyes are brown to black. Thank you for the invitation. So that was the first, uh, that was a this tacky, terribly tacky email, and I wanted to um, ask my mother if she asked the white woman what did she mean by wanting to be black, and what does it mean to uh, let a little white boy be a nigger, but she wasn't interested in that. Um, the second incident was actually my son. He was at school, and he had a very interesting exchange uh, with the superintendent of his school, goes to a private school, uh, who is a racist suspect. And uh, he wrote it out, so I'm going to read it in his own words. So he, the superintendent asked, they, I guess they're on this, um, they're on this sort of mock tour. They take a school trip every year, and this, this, um, the school is predominantly black. It's, um, it's a choice school, so it's, uh, it's, it's quote unquote religious. Um, and it's a predominantly black school, but every year uh, in the middle school, they take a class trip. And so this year, um, they're getting ready for this class trip, and they're taking a mock tour around this neighborhood that the school is in, which used to be primarily black, but is starting to become increasingly gentrified. So this, in my son's words, this is what happened. Uh, the superintendent asked him any other questions. My son raised his hand. And the superintendent says, yes. My son said, would you classify this neighborhood as gentrified? Uh, the superintendent said, that's a great question. I liked how you said classified. Would you also tell the other students what gentrified means? And my son, who's 11, says, well, gentrified basically means when one race buys out another race's property and makes it worth more. And he has in parentheses, this definition is codified because of the suspected white supremacists that were there. There were about six of, of these white teachers there. The superintendent then says, yes, I would classify this neighbor, neighborhood as gentrified. The low-income residents who live here could not keep up with the richer residents who started buying out the other houses and making the neighborhood's wealth grow. And then my son Pierre says, he means white people kicked out black people. So I asked my son why he asked this question, and he said, well, he asked the question because he was telling other peers that the neighborhood by, by the school was gentrified while they were on the mock tour. He said he also asked the question because he wanted to see the superintendent would actually make up a racist, white supremacist answer. So uh, that's all I have. Um, I will say that the next day, this happened on Thursday, the next day I had to go into the school to sign a permission slip, and a lot of the, the racist suspects who were on this mock tour kept on asking me questions, or uh, they, they would say things like, wow, you know, he really knocked our socks off with that question. You know, it, just uh, trying to get more information, trying to figure out how he knows these things. One of them said, well, he really had, had it great knowledge of what gentrification was. It's the best I've ever heard from a loving girl. And I was just like, mm, and just left it alone because I know they're trying to get information. Um, and I will say, I just, I thank you for the clips, Gus, because every week I'm reminded of who the enemy is. Every week. So thank you for that. Uh, with that, I'll mute my line. Thanks. Make sure I don't miss that metaphor. White 
as the driven snow. Hmm. Anyway, uh, that is absolutely spectacular. Uh, your child questions that that right there. And if I could uh, just take a, a moment briefly, I think when Cheryl Moses was on the program a few uh, weeks back, uh, come meet a black person founder, right? And we were talking and. I think she was saying about my definition of racism, white supremacy, that I'm paraphrasing that it was too technical, perhaps, and uh, that you want to talk in a way that a child can understand. I am such a huge advocate, and I hope that our record here on the cows is that, yes, you can explain racism, white supremacy accurately so that even a child at 11, 10, 9, 8, they can understand what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white. And even at that age, they can start working on questions to ask whites. That is such a great skill and just the courage, because I know sometimes people can feel, you know, frightened, uh, racists, they have terrorized us. So that's legitimate. But just, hey, I have the black self-respect to courageously step forward and ask one or 21 questions uh, to racist man, racist woman, racist child. That is absolutely brilliant. And then the codified response from the attempted parent when they are trying to get information. How did this little nigger get all these questions? His nigger parents must be doing something. We'll ask her a lot of questions. Hmm. I don't have a whole lot to say either. I'm going to be codified to brilliant, brilliant all the way around. Tell your child outstanding job and to uh, remain alert because I am sure that they are going to be paying very close attention uh, to him at school uh, from now on if they weren't already. Um, Gus, I just wanted to say to that, yes, I, I have uh, let him know. And thank you, by the way, for the kind words. Um, I have let him know that, yes, they will probably be um, asking more questions, and there is a um, a non-white black male there who is who is the only black male in administration. He's the dean of discipline, interestingly enough, for the middle school, and he's married to a white woman. So I have explained to him that this that he that this person it, yes <laughs> that this person is a victim. And that he may, that he is under a great deal of pressure because this is how he earns, this is how he feeds his family, and he may come to him and ask him questions. Do not let your guard down, and it's not necessarily this non-white victim's fault either. So, thank you for that. Being prepared, being prepared, outstanding. You again, you can explain really. That is your duty, really, in my view, one of your primary duties. And why I say consistent, Grandsister Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, she would say consistently, when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring. When you plan out way in advance to have children, how are we going to talk about white supremacy racism to our child at age two, age three, age seven? resources, books. That way you can put more time in and making sure you have all that stuff together so that it'll be easy when it's time to have these sorts of conversations. 
great job. Uh, really, that's something we got to make sure that we're doing and getting better at refining as we go, uh, being attempted counter race. I do not have children, so make sure. <laughs> but I do think that that's important and, and have the highest regard uh, for attempted parents who are doing that, like what we just heard. Other folks we've not heard from at all? Please don't wait till the last minute. If we have people that have not spoken at all, uh, it would be grand to go ahead and hear from you now as opposed to waiting until it's five minutes left and then having a chorus of people say, oh, hey, I have about 20 things that I want to get in before we get ready to conclude. So folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary. Greetings, Ivy. Greetings, Gus. Uh, being to all the callers and uh, listeners on the line. Gus, do you have the applause sound clip? Uh, uh, repeat, please. Do you have that, that applause? Do you still have that applause sound clip? The applause sound clip. I might. It would take me a second to look through my clips to see if I still have it. That is so in order for the uh, qualified software developer and her son. Um, so I was just wondering if you still had that. So I'll just uh, keep talking in the meantime while you're looking for it, or if you get it later, or you know, whenever. But anyway, um, I wanted to say also that uh, I listened again to the to the uh, believers uh, the hey you give um, the beginning where you had the the bamboozle and how you tied it all in together. Um, it definitely was. In my in my opinion, it was a a brilliant comparison of how you know the the white people they came in and tried to change everything and just how that relates to the book and how clearly if she wrote that book at all, they definitely came in and took over the rest of it. Um, as far as you know, when you said about you know throwing shade and just any of those derivative shady and, and things like that. I actually stopped using that phrase for the exact same reason or for the same reason that, you know, just comparing something negative to, um, to, to something dark, and even to, Ooh, how do I say this without using a metaphor to make darkness, something bad. Cause I was going to say demonize to make, to make darkness, something bad. Um, and to make to make shade something bad because shade is not bad. Like that's a great thing. Like if it's too hot and you you know you want to sit in the shade. That's a good thing. And now races have turned that into something bad. Now just just to denigrate um, black people. And I know that the the racist known as Eminem. Uh, he he goes by a, a separate name of uh, Slim Shady. Um, let me see what's something else that uh. I wanted to bring up. Hmm. Well, I guess if I think of it later in this time, uh, I'll just uh, bring it up. But yeah, I just wanted to say, um, just you know, that's that's awesome to uh, the codified uh, uh, software developer. I'm not uh, shocked at all. Um, oh, I wanted to ask you guys because that situation reminded me of this. And if you are not at liberty to disclose this, I'll understand, but I just wanted to ask um, Justice, your either co-host or former co-host, when she was like 14 years old, she said something very um, 
profound to a racist name. I believe her name was Stephanie Ely. And so my question is, is justice still on her counter racist grind or is she not? And again, if you're not at liberty to answer that, I'll understand. But I, I was really uh, just curious about that because she, she just taught me so much and her being so young, being so codified reminds me of um, the codified so, a software developer's son. So, Absolutely. And I mean, that right there, that's why I said, I hope on this broadcast, great illustration of absolutely, you can talk to children at 10, 9, 8. I mean, yes, and they can understand racism, white supremacy easily. Uh, Sterling illustration uh, with Justice's contribution. She, uh, well, I guess it would depend on what you mean by on her counter-racist grind. She absolutely is still applying uh, her understanding or, yeah, her understanding of counter-racist logic uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I'm not sure how you would stop or cease doing that once you have an accurate understanding that, yes, this uh, exists. This is racism, white supremacy uh, is. Uh, she is doing her school thing. She is 19 now, so that's the general trend of what people do at that uh, age. That's taking up a lot of her time, energy, focus, uh, doing her schooling. But absolutely, uh, she recognizes racism, white supremacy, and comments on it on a regular basis, uh, both from what she's seeing from her uh, professors and around her uh, regularly. Absolutely. I'm so sorry for uh, the metaphor, but that is exactly what I mean. She's still applying it. I know there was a guest. Her name was, I believe, Aisha. I know her last name was Segment, and I heard her on the interview where she said before she used to make a lot of political music, and she has no desire to make that type of music anymore, and now her music is pretty much what you hear uh, typically just the, the popular trendy things that you hear these days. So she's not, she doesn't seem to be, I guess, interested in any sort of counter-racist um, lifestyle, for lack of words. Um, so, you know, that's what I meant. Like, even though Justice isn't co-hosting the show, uh, the program right now, is she still, you know, having the same mindset and, and still growing as a, as a counter-racist and still interested in um, counter racism. So that's very um, encouraging to hear. Did you find that applause button? I mean, clip. I was searching and I did not find it. Now, I might have put it in under a different name, but I have not. As of yet, I failed. It's okay. Well, thank you so much for even uh, looking for it. And uh, that, that's all I have. I'll, I'll mute my line. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, guys. For sure. I guess I would say, and that's what I say about uh, comparisons, uh, even though. Uh, that there's nothing incorrect about that. Make sure I'm uh, explicit. There's nothing incorrect uh, about referencing uh, Aisha Segmet, who's been a guest on the program more than once. Uh, I would just say that that, at least in my view, is slightly different if you are engaged in some sort of commercial enterprise, uh, which entertainment <clears throat> mostly is. Uh, I think in that form of what she was doing, some sort of commercial enterprise, you're trying to uh, be compensated for what you're doing. That's a little different than just going about your existence and applying counter-racist concepts where you're not necessarily looking for any sort of direct financial compensation. Uh, I think that might have a big bearing. Uh, cause I, and, and plus, 
Aisha's segment, I don't know what she's doing like in her personal life. She might be still doing all of the views that she had and was originally articulating. She might be still applying all of that in her personal life, but just with her music right now, she might be doing something else for different purposes, if that makes if that makes sense. It does. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, other folks, if we've not heard from you at all, please do not wait till the last minute. Uh, if you have commentary, uh, feel free. Greetings, Imahan DC. Yes, sir. Greetings to you. Greetings to you, the host, the callers, and the listeners. I wanted to talk about the chemtrails again. Uh, Today was a relatively sunny day. Uh, So it it started out with mostly no clouds, blue skies, and then uh, towards the middle of the day, they started putting out a whole lot of airplanes that would let out these chemical trails out of the airplane. Um, it was, they were doing it early in the day, too, but towards the middle of the day, it, it, it was just plane after plane in a short period of time. And they started making these arches. So they, they, they made several different bell-shaped arches. Um, in different with different uh, length, you know how wide the arch was, and they also and uh, so so they did that uh, going from like the ground up and then down, and then they also did a lot of circular patterns um, in the in the sky, not um, complete circles, but like look like they're closing off a cloud, whatever cloud pattern that they're going to create. They did several of those um, uh, curves in the sky, uh, like on a horizontal plane. They also drew a whole lot of checkered patterns in the sky and a lot of triangles. And it looks like it's a very specific design that they're drawing in the sky. And And in a matter of hours, it went from a blue sky to a, a white sky to where the, the sun was shining, but it was shining through, again, this really thick haze of chemical cloud. And the rest of the sky, although it, it wasn't uh, completely covered with cloud, it wasn't blue anymore. But it's a serious situation. They're doing this for a reason, and they're doing it, and it's very obvious. And it, it would just seem like they would be a little more more covert. It would seem like they would be a little more covert with what they would would uh, would do with drawing and or putting all these chemicals in the clouds and then in the in the sky. But they're not being covert. Covert. They're doing it, and people aren't people are not videotaping it. But it's very serious. Something's going on. I don't know exactly what they're playing. But I, that's something we need to pay attention to. Thank you. Appreciate that, Imhandisi. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Roz. Good to hear from you. Hey, peace and love. Good to see you, uh, Gus, and to the other callers and listeners. Um, 
Wow, great show. I, I didn't get to hear the very early clips, um, but I did get to hear some of the later stuff, and then the commentary has been really great. Um, I will say Barbara Bush, good riddance to an old, wretched, racist uh, backbone of the Bush uh, legacy of terrorism. I'm glad she's gone. I hope the Queen of England goes next. She just celebrated her birthday, and it's just like she's been, been around for so long. It is nauseating anymore. So I'm waiting for her to, you know, get out of out of the physical realm as quickly as possible as well. Um, so, yeah, good riddance to her. Um, the clip on, the, on medical apartheid I found to be quite interesting. I would say I participated in, in uh, that study club. And I agree with you. It's one of my top five books of all times. Um, I recommended it very regularly. I've discussed it regularly um, because I think it's one of the most important texts uh, written about the the deep, refined, systematic terrorism that's written into every aspect of our people activity, every area of people activity. And that one, to me, as far as that book, really elucidates how it functions in medicine in a way that I don't think any of the text does. Um, I found that the clip was quite interesting because they said that uh, people who came from Caribbean and African so-called third world countries, when they first get to this country, their mortality rate and uh, reproductive health is on par with white females. And they said within a year, their health deteriorates and, and then is on par with African-American females is what they said. So what they're really telling me is that the, these so-called third world countries, African Caribbean third world countries have a better medical system in relation to women's reproductive health and that black females in America get some of the worst medical assistance on the planet. And once they get here because of their color, they're being treated as black females here because we're all in the system of white supremacy. So um, it should really be a lot of, uh, give a lot, give people a lot of uh, something to really think about in regards to, because I always thought, and I know that, uh, you know, when my family's from in Trinidad, we had a horrible medical system and it was uh, Fidel Castro who ended up sending nurses, uh, a whole bunch of nurses from Cuba to teach uh, the, the, medical practitioners in Trinidad and to also um, recruit new ones so that they can expand on the medical system there. And Cuba has one of the top medical systems in the world. So um, it should really give people pause for thought um, as, as far as going to the doctor for anything. And um, everything that the, the one of the first female callers discussed about when she was ill is accurate as far as taking someone with you, someone who's lucid and who is not sick that can look out for you and ask the right questions. It is I've, I've said this before on numerous programs um, as far as the compensatory calling when this type of discussion comes up. And um, that is of the utmost importance. Now, there's something else I wanted to bring up because one thing I found is that now that my wife has this business with these uh, three other black females, they're coming in contact with all kinds of people. This particular uh, strip in Brooklyn, um, and I'm only using a metaphor because this is what they, they term it. They call it the uh, black magic uh, row, the black girl magic row. And the reason why is because um, the vast majority, I'd probably say like about 97% of the businesses in, on this strip in Tompkins Avenue 
are all black female owned businesses and it attracts a myriad of people from extremely famous people to uh, some of the gentrifying uh, racists in the area. And uh, someone came to the store and met my wife and they really um, got along quite well. And this woman is actually a, uh, a writer and author and um, a degree black female writer. Her name is Deirdre Cooper Owens, and this discussion ties right into her book. I just got it not too long ago. It's called Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. And she specifically deals with Tay Marion Sims. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from the back cover of the book. It says, the accomplishments of uh, pioneering American doctors such as John Peter um, Metow, excuse me, James Marion Sims and Nathan Bozeman are well documented. It is also no secret that these 19th century gynecologists performed experimental cesarean sections, um, ovariomies, and obstetric fistula repairs, primarily on poor and powerless women. Medical bondage breaks new ground by exploring how and why physicians denied these women their full humanity, yet valued them as med- quote-unquote medical superbodies, highly suited for medical experimentation. In Medical Bondage, Deirdre Cooper Owens examines a wide range of scientific literature and less formal communications in which gynecologists created and disseminated medical fictions about their patients, such as their belief that black enslaved women could withstand pain better than white quote-unquote ladies, even as they were advancing medicine. These doctors were legitimizing for decades to come Groundless theories related to whiteness and blackness, men and women, and the inferiority of other races or nationalities. Medical bondage moves between subjects of text we can get into um, sometime down the road on the Book Study Club, and it specifically focuses on women's reproductive gynecological health and the history of the terrorism visited to black women by people like James Marion Sims and the other uh, two people that were mentioned in the text. Now, to get a little bit... Uh, talk about something else. It was interesting. My wife today was at work and she met three young black females, all of them eight years old, and they were business people. One uh, wrote, uh, has affirmation cards that are African centered um, and having to deal with black self-respect. The other one uh, actually is a seamstress and she makes her own pillows. Um, And my son ended up buying products from all three of them. The third one, I can't remember what she does. But my wife said they were the most eloquent, um, just highly intelligent um, young black children that she had come across in a long time. Even my son, he said he was quite flabbergasted at the level of the conversation coming from these eight-year-olds. And at one point, um, my wife had asked them, one of them, where she was from. So she said, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn. But she said, I don't really, uh, I don't really identify with America. I, I identify with Grenada, which is where her family's from. And she said... She didn't get to ask her more about it. She wanted to, but she said, based on the context of how she said it and the look on her face, she could tell that there was just a knowingness as far as understanding that something isn't right in this country related to racism. She just didn't didn't get to question her, but I think they'll have more time down the road because this young lady is on the same street. And uh, she said it was just a profound experience to come into contact with these brilliant young black children who um, were just quite sharp and business savvy. Um, you said that you had a couple other questions. I wanted to answer them too. What was the other questions besides uh, the psychopathic Barbara Bush? Uh, good riddance to that broad uh, question. <laughs> uh, did you get to see the end of Scandal? Uh, and then I think I asked for people if they participated in medical apartheid. 
Oh, okay. So, yes, um, I did not watch Scams. I actually despise, loathe, and hate that show. I never watched it from day one. I just would get nauseous whenever I would hear people talk about it at work. Um, and I found it just quite, uh, just the most, one of the most anti-black um, shows on television, which was why it was so popular as far as I'm concerned. So, no, I didn't get to watch it. I would never watch it. I just think it's a waste of life force, time, energy, and attention that I'm not willing to put in to watch a, a, a black female be sexually sewered and terrorized by a white supremacist. Uh, I just think it's, it's just quite disgusting. Um, so, yeah, I didn't get to watch it. But um, ultimately, I just thought that the, the, the medical apartheid aspect of this is quite telling. And I think it's, it's, it's disconcerting because you're guaranteed, as far as this system is concerned, if you come to this country and you're a highly melanated person, to be abused. And, and it's funny because even the, the context in which they use the term that the, uh, the African and Caribbean immigrants, their um, uh, mortality rates and, and health plummeted to the level of black American females. Now, just that concept really, is, it, it kind of reminds me of the caste system in India because you have the untouchables, which are the largest population, and these are black Indians that migrated to India, the original Indians that left from Ethiopia and settled there. And these people are discussed in those terms. As far as the Dalits, they're known as Dalits, but they're also called untouchables. So to me, when they use that term, to the, they, their health fell to the level of black Americans, as black American females, as if, there's some inherent, uh, uh, some sort of inherent uh, negative aspect of being a black American female. Um, and, and, and to me, it didn't fully take into context <laughs> why their, that their health is at that level. And it's white supremacy. There's nothing inherently wrong with being black and female. It's the system that is causing this particular disparity. And that's what needs to be addressed. So thanks for the um, opportunity to speak, and um, I'll mute my line. Appreciate that, Roz. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all? Guy heard. Greetings, retired firefighter. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'll start off with the uh, white person who uh, was formerly in the position of uh, – position that's called first lady uh i measure white people by the uh extent that they have uh, been active on countering the system of racism white supremacy uh, excuse me the system of racist white supremacy and uh i briefly uh, because the television was on that particular channel when I went to uh, my mother's house and uh, the funeral was actually on te- television. And uh, and normally, you know, at a funeral, they, they talk about a person, you know, in their life and whatnot. And I, I never did hear anything that has anything to do with countering racism, white supremacy. So... Uh, and I would say not only for uh, Mrs. Bush, but uh, white people in general, they do not come nowhere close to 
anything that considered to be countering racism, uh, and specifically in her position, being that uh, through sex, she uh, is in close proximity to two males, one as being sexual partner, two the results of sex, uh, and still you don't, and, and very influential with those two people, but nevertheless, uh, there is none that I've actually heard as far as uh, countering racism uh, and being serious about it. Uh, the television program Scandal, never saw it, heard a lot about it, None of it, as far as what I've heard about it, was constructive, considered to be constructive. Uh, if I had the the power to do so, uh, I would uh, would encourage any non-white person to uh, stray away from uh, taking uh, jobs to whereas they are saying and doing something uh, in an imagery form that I guess is called acting uh, that is not constructive. Uh, I think I know the uh, one of the principal actors in the program. Uh, I believe she, uh, black female, I believe she played uh, Ray Charles' wife uh, in, the, in the movie. And I did like her uh, performance in that movie. If I'm, t if I am correct, uh, I, I think I am. Uh, I did like her performance in the movie, and it what it 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 did tell me that she is uh, very uh, talented and quite professional. Uh, so I know she can, uh, you know, do pretty good things, but. Uh, just the just the name of the program scandal would would have me uh, to not watch it uh, unless it had white in front of it. You know, then I would you know probably it, it, I'll be tempted to watch it if it had white in front of the word scandal uh, itself. Uh, I uh, the uh, the the book uh, the book uh, ooh, just that quick just slipped my mind on what the title of the book book. Uh, is that you're talking about um, medical apartheid? Anyway, med medical apartheid. I'm sorry, uh, medical apartheid. Uh, yes, I have uh, used the book a lot in uh, in uh, constructive counter-racist discourse uh, and to share the information uh, from participating in the book read, sharing the information because it, uh, there's a lot of opportunities when non-white people especially are, are conversing with one another in a constructive way, uh, health does come up. Uh, and uh, so uh, that would give the opportunity, in my opinion, would give the opportunity to mention about uh, books or some sort of uh, documentary that would help support any constructive uh, discourse or something informative, and that book certainly would, would fill, in, fill into that category. Uh, I uh, have uh, basically challenged myself to 
on a weekly basis to uh, attempt to uh, uh, make counter-racist activity uh, into, uh, you know, some sort of formative uh, thing that I do on a daily basis uh, just by thinking on how do I how do I uh, transfer this thought on uh, on on counter racism into something uh, uh, that is uh, on a daily basis? And uh, there were two attempts uh, this week. I can I, I'll speak on one was in. It is always something going on with me in a grocery store. <laughs> uh, in a grocery store again. And uh, the person ahead of me, uh, non-white black male. And uh, as we all know, a lot of us use cards nowadays to, uh, you know, when we are purchasing items. And he was having some real trouble uh, with his card. Uh, he seems to be a elderly, elderly uh, black male. And uh, so I decided to uh, mention to the cashier, that I would uh, take care of his bill, and uh, so so he can proceed as well as uh, I can proceed also through the uh, through the line. Uh, there was another uh, similar situation. This was in a, uh, a fast food restaurant uh, where I don't I don't go through the drive-through when I do go to a fast food restaurant because I would like to see on. Uh, how my food is being prepared. So anyway, I go into the uh, go into the uh, the uh, restaurant, and uh, uh, there was a black male who approached me, and he asked for money. And uh, I don't feel comfortable about giving someone money. For the most part, I don't even have it on me. You know, uh, for the most part, I don't. And in this case, I did not have any money on me. And I mentioned that to uh, this uh, this uh, black male that I don't have any money, and uh, I but I asked him I asked him a question. Well, what what do you need the money? Uh, uh, do you need the money because you're hungry? And he said yes. And I said, well, just step right up here with me, and and uh, and uh, uh, we're, I'm going to buy you lunch. I'm going to buy you lunch, and you know, along with me. And uh, he he thanked me for it, and I quickly stated, uh, uh, "Well, I appreciate the thanks, but you don't have to you don't have to give me that. That's something I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help you. We're supposed to help each other." Basically, what I uh, informed him of, and uh, after that, we just had a you know departed. Uh, but uh, that's all I have to uh, say, and thank you for listening. Outstanding. Helping other victims of white supremacy. Uh, absolutely spectacular. Uh, I'm glad to hear it, Mr. Williams. I think the system of white supremacy does a lot to discourage that sort of thing, to discourage us from helping and asking for help. And I think both, I think both of those are a big part of solving this problem. We can watch the background noise. Yes, sir. Thomas in New York. Good evening, Gus. I'm sorry. I dropped my phone. Um, good evening to all the callers. Um, I'm still a little traumatized from last night's meeting. Um, uh, um, area eight activity. Um, but the letter that the caller read from the white supremacist in regards to her family reunion that made up for it all. 
that was um quite revealing. Um wow, you <laughs> mean um scandal, um classic white supremacist propaganda. I did not watch the the show. Uh, however, my wife does, so I would occasionally um you know, be in the room with her while it was on and um of course I would not have any of her attention, but I would you know, pick up on things and the way that it was written um, where they could talk about racism, but yet the whole premise is a black woman sleeping with a married white man who happens to be the president. It's just, um, in my opinion, uh, designed to further sewer the image of black women worldwide. You know, it's, it's going to fall in line with reality TV and a lot of the stuff that black women um, post on social media that gets um, blown up. Uh, which is pretty much how you become a reality TV star. It's based off of your social media presence. Um, last thing I'll add is on um, medical apartheid. I was um, on that book reading session, um, and I was glad um, that I had that information before I went into the healthcare field or working at the hospital when I was at that job, um, knowing a lot of what's going on already. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't confused in that position. You know, I, I kind of already knew what to expect and everything that I was seeing, I could kind of relate back to that book. And I would often tell black employees of the hospital to read that book. Um, and uh, I would explain some of the things from that book and they would seem interested. I would tell them, you know, they would write it down. I don't know if they ever really got it or not, but um, definitely a classic book. Um, White supremacists that work that has been torturing me, the torturist. Thus, um, yesterday she asked me, I couldn't even hold this until uh, next week. I thought it was so funny. Yesterday she asked me to go to Starbucks for her. Now, just to give some background, the gentleman whose position I took, he said um, he used to have to always go get her her coffee. And he did it up until a day that she overheard him complaining to someone about having to do it, and she never asked him again. So I said, oh, I'm not even going to let her get in the habit of this. This was the first time she ever asked me to do this. And I told her, I'm boycotting Starbucks. She said, you're boycotting Starbucks? I said, yeah, for racism. And I walked away. So she came to me later being very nice. Um, is this about the incident? Uh, with the young men in the bathroom? And I said, yes. And she says, oh, so how long will this boycott last? I said, forever. And she says, oh. And she walked away. And I'll mute my mom. Black self-respect, right on. I, oh, I did want to make sure I got in. The grandsister, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, on a Cal's broadcast, 31 times a guest, she was talking about scandal. And she said, great line. She said that she felt that Scandal and uh, the film The Butler, which I've never seen that came out about a black male who was uh, a butler at the White House. Uh, she said that she felt the white supremacist articulation of that movie and the TV show Scandal was that with the Obamas in the White House, it is a scandal that those niggers are in the White House. And if they are going to be in the White House, they are supposed to be the butler. That was her articulation, and she explained it on a Cal's broadcast. The grandsister, Dr. Francis 
Cress Welsing, uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I'm a first-time caller, and uh, so I'm probably going to be a little bit nervous. Um, along with the questions about Scandal, I did watch it from, like, the first season to the second season, and I thought it was pretty okay, but for some reason, whenever I saw, like, any television show where they showed, like, a black female, particularly with a white male, I really felt odd watching it. I I don't know how to describe the feeling that I would get, but I just, I I didn't like seeing it because I, I guess sort of subconsciously, I sort of felt like it just, it shouldn't be. I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to articulate it, but yeah, um, like I said, sorry, I'm a little nervous. And um, I wanted to sort of give like a scenario that happened a couple of days ago. I um, was out of town with my son and we were walking around in the hotel and we decided to, you know, go sit by the pool. And he's like an infant. He's only about three months. And this lady, this um, white lady, comes by and she's like, oh, can I ogle at him? And I didn't really hear her. And judging how they are and how suspected white supremacists treat, especially uh, black children, I just instantly said no. Because I thought that she said, can I hold him? And I definitely don't want a stranger let alone a suspected white supremacist holding my child. So I told her no. And um, she was very offended by it. <laughs> and she was like, really, I can't look at him? Are you serious? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, you can look, but heck no, you, you can't hold him. <laughs> so anyways, long story short, I just, I felt like I showed maybe an inkling or not an inkling. I think that's a metaphor. I'm sorry. Um, I showed an ounce of black self-respect by telling her no because I really used to be extremely confused and very uh, insecure. So I could definitely see in my older self saying yes to that woman, even if I thought she said, could she hold my child? So, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Like I said, I'm very nervous, and um, I'll meet my wife. Don't be nervous. Glad to hear from you. First-time caller. Uh, just victims of white supremacy. Uh, certainly no reason to be nervous. Uh, still learning myself. Still confused uh, myself. So, you know, just, Yeah. I, I was going to say uh, congratulations, I guess, first and foremost, if you have a, a three-month-old, congratulations. and Or, hey, you would be a great person to ask before uh, you, you exit. Uh, we did have the clip about uh, black maternal mortality rates. I've been saying for a few weeks now that I have been seeing increasing attention focused on this in mainstream outlets. I think I said that last week. Ivy gave her theory. She thought this might be to soothe white women's concerns about their own uh, fragility around childbirth. Uh, you 
three months from just having a child again. Congratulations. What are, what are your thoughts on these reports about uh, concerns about black maternal mortality rates? Um, I really haven't been, I'm not so informed on it. I know that I did listen to the broadcast where you had um, the doula from Austin and you all were talking about it, but I'm not, I'm not really informed on it, but I am in the state of Texas. And to be honest, like <laughs> I'm sort of a, a loner. All I do is sit at home and watch my child all day. So I, I'm really not the, the best person to ask, but I do think it's a little alarming that for some reason that they're um, more interested in that. I would say that it's to soothe um, other um, white mothers of their problems of infertility to know that we're not really having problems of infertility, but we're dying at the fact of we're in a system of racism, white supremacy, and it makes it a little bit harder on us whenever we have children, and um, it's not really um, expected, I guess. I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm very nervous. Don't be nervous. <laughs> no, don't be nervous. Just victims hanging out. I definitely appreciate the feedback and being a, a mom, that is a full-time job. So you are not a loner. You are being a full-time mom with a newborn. That is plenty. Um, with regards to the, the suspected racist who came to ask about uh, ogling your newborn child, uh, I don't, I guess other folks can share that. Uh, I guess you'll have to, we'll have to be quick, right? If you want to share our thoughts on this one, I don't have children. I said that before when I heard it, right. When you were saying that she wanted to ogle your, uh, child at the poolside, I was thinking, ew, like, oh my gosh, like Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, uh, Jerry Sandusky. That's what I was thinking. Jimmy Savile, uh, over in the UK, like, let me grab my child. And I think it might be time for us to leave the pool. Like, that's what I was thinking. Even when it was, let me just look at your child now, hold, Oh my God. Like, Ooh, (laughs) like, uh, same thing. Let me grab my child. It is time to get out of the pool. Maybe we'll come back later. Maybe not. Uh, but neither is acceptable and both made me equally creepy. Like, I don't think I would have been cool with her, looking at my child from a distance either but uh yes black self-respect in uh saying no i think i would have denied both requests but you know folks can i I, if they i would be interested i guess in hearing from parents um that's something we can do quick parents if you want to give just a quick would you be okay with a white person wanting to look at your child at the pool parents can i be ready Yes. Oh, young. Let me stip you because we have a under one, so it's got to be a young child. Your your child that's one or younger. Um. Do I have the opportunity to answer that quickly, Gus? Or yes, no? sir. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry. Um. One thing I wanted to say is that the word ogle means to look at someone lecherously. So there's a pedophilic connotation to what she actually said. And that's what the word Google means. It's basically go ogle, go look at people lecherously on the internet. So you are absolutely right to be uncomfortable with it. Even though you thought she said that she wanted to hold your child, she basically said, I want to watch your child in a lecherous pedophilic manner. 
So that's my take on that. And I would have gotten away from the pool as quickly as possible as well. I'll mute myself and give someone else a chance to um, answer that. Definitions, super important, super, super important. Any other parents want to give a quick uh, response, like 30 seconds or less, uh, if you would allow a white stranger to, uh, if she said ogle, wow, to ogle your child at the pool, one-year-old or younger child at the poolside, would you all be all right with that? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I would speak just like you know, on uh, workplace racism. I would speak directly to the subject uh, of a white person even coming to me with that interest. Uh, speaking directly to it, the first answer would be no. And uh, then I would expound on why I would say no, because first of all, I, I don't trust white people. And uh, I don't trust white people in their in their viewing of non-white people, as well as uh, let alone talking about touching unnecessarily touching uh, another non-white person, especially somebody who is close to me, like my uh, newborn. Uh, speak directly to it, and uh, and with your tone and uh, would would oh, uh, put it in the courtesy. Ten seconds. It's supposed to be quick. I'm sorry. It, it, your tone itself will put it in the courtesy, in the courtesy lane. Right on. Oh, uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Yes, sir. And this, ma'am, this is not a, a critique at all uh, of your response. Like you said, you didn't even hear uh, what she said at first, and we're we're uh, moving away correctly. So, in my view, because uh, you thought she said hold and and all that, I'm just you know processing the situation. If anything, I guess to emphasize, just whites are extremely dangerous. Like I think we should always err on the side of this could be Jeffrey Dahmer. This could be Jerry Sandusky, uh, you know, Gene Sandusky, if you will, e every time. Like, I think that's the, the side that we should err on. That's what we should think of uh, when they're in contact with us. And especially because so frequently there is that sexual predatory nature to how they function with us. And she might have been revealing herself to you if she, you know, did actually say Ogle. I mean, wow, that's delectable negro can i put that out there too delectable negro because that was that should maybe be encroaching on gus's top 10 delectable negro vincent woodard wow great one anybody we missed completely anybody we missed uh completely anybody we've not heard from at all can i be heard yes sir uh, greetings, Gus and listeners. This is Walter from Detroit. Um, and thanks for the, for the show. Uh, I've been listening for a little over here now. And I wanted to comment on scandal. Um, I try to watch. I try to watch to see what psychological messages the uh, white supremacists are putting out. But watching it actually literally turns my stomach. It makes makes me nauseated. But and for some reason, I keep falling asleep on it. But from what I have forced myself to watch, uh, on the show, she used to be the one in control and dominant. But gradually, it seemed like the white women gained control and became the dominant characters. And I think it reduced her to the traditional um, negress role that the races are comfortable with. But uh, I tried to watch this last episode, but I fell asleep on it. 
I couldn't tell you what happened. And also, uh, the issue of the chemtrails. Uh, actually, I do notice that on certain sunny days, I look up and I see patterns in the sky, those patterns that the other caller was talking about, square-like patterns. And uh, then later on, a couple hours later, seems like it's overcast. Um, also, when I have a backyard garden, I wonder if those uh, chemtrails, uh, things from the chemtrails, have an effect on my uh, vegetables, the non-GMO vegetables. Just wondering. Um, that's it. I, I'll meet my line. Appreciate that. Anybody that we missed completely? Anybody who has a hand up that we didn't hear from at all? Grand. I will assume that we got uh, everybody. Uh, I forgot. To, how could I possibly forget everybody's favorite possible subjects ma- uh, matter? We spent all this time talking about scandal. Everyone's favorite area of people activity. Uh, sexual intercourse. Hang on, I'm being interrupted now. <laughs> uh, everyone's favorite area of people activity, area eight, uh, sexual intercourse. Uh, I told folks, uh, I think a week or so ago, we had Dr. or a couple weeks back, we had Dr. Martin Kevorkian on the program, and he mentioned uh, Dr. Carolyn West, uh, black female. She's at the University of Washington, uh, where I am. She's at the Tacoma branch. I'm in Seattle. Uh, Tacoma and Seattle are like, you know, neighbor. Or I guess if you don't know, for people who are not familiar, Tacoma is maybe a 30-minute drive down the road, depending on traffic, 30, 40 minutes, depending on traffic. Uh, They're making a train, so the train, I'm sure you'll be able to get there in like five minutes. Anyway, she did a presentation on white supremacy and pornography. She did a documentary. She came to University or yeah, she came to University of Texas, Austin to a presentation. That's where he saw her. And she has a documentary on the subject matter. And when I spoke with her via phone, we were in agreement, it seemed, that racist jokes and pornography, these seem to be two times when whites are honest when they speak about their thoughts on niggers. Unfiltered, total honesty. And she said that she was taking white feminists her colleagues, right, to task because she was seeing this and like, how do you all have nothing to say about this? You talk about the commodification of women and blah, blah, blah. And look at this. Look at what they're doing. You know, the racism and the commodification of women. And she talked about the same abuse of black males as well. It's, uh, you know, all the way around. Uh, But she said they had nothing to say about this. So she did this documentary. Uh, It's not... Uh, I will be able to view it before the program, but it's not like widely available right now. So hopefully she'll you know, be able to give updates on when you all will be able to check it out. But I am super excited. Uh, we were supposed to do a program on white supremacy and pornography like years ago. I had people from all over the world who were sending uh, content and oh my, it was, man, the uh, excitement and anticipation. Area 8, always people's favorite area of activity. Uh, But I do think the content is important. Uh, Dr. Kevorkian said her work, he was super uh, impressed. And I'm even more, I guess, intrigued because she's right where I am. Uh, We could we could go to the Starbucks headquarters and have a conversation about her work, white supremacy and pornography. But she should be here uh, this coming I think it's this coming Wednesday, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Dr. Carolyn West, black female, uh, she'll be joining us live. Will be a hoot 
to have her on the program. Have your questions ready if you want to ask about Scandal. Man, I cannot wait to ask her if she is familiar with The Hate You Give. Wow, in which we will be complete, uh, concluding this coming Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Again, if you know any uh, younger folks, if they had to read this book for class, if they read it for pleasure, please have them uh, participate. We would, or I would love, I'm sure listeners would as well, absolutely love to hear their thoughts, views uh, on the book, what the discussion sounded like in class, all of that. But that's concluding Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Thank you so much to everybody who participated. I hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, if you have questions, guest suggestions, problems, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. There was a great documentary on uh, Stephen Lawrence uh, that came out this week. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, the Lawrence family and their work against racism, white supremacy. His mother, Doreen Lawrence, has been a guest on the program repeatedly. Uh, check that out if you're looking for uh, constructive viewing content. Thanks again for all tuning in. Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. I think Dr. Welsing and many of the other folks that we revere, they would certainly encourage us being sober and taking great care of our brain computer and health overall. Let's do everything we can so that we can think clearly, come up with great concepts, solutions to the problem, racist man, racist woman, racist child. If you're going to be out and about, certainly buckle up, driver or passenger. You also want to be sober if you're going to be in that vehicle. Let's do everything we possibly can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.